I don't even know where to start. What do you want to start with? Uh, Johnny Ive. Johnny Ive. I guess that's probably historically the biggest news of the week. So we could just talk about our new black watches, but it feels like. Um, so Monday, Memorial Day, uh, U.S. holiday. Um, I I was just <laughs> I so did not know what to make sense of this when it hit. A story came out in the Telegraph in the United Kingdom, uh, written by Stephen Fry, who uh, though I don't I have some complaints about the article. Uh, it was a wonderful. You know, one of the world's most uh, beloved uh, figures. I mean, he's a comedian, actor, writer, longtime Apple fan, uh, wrote a profile. And I guess you'd call it a profile. I don't know. It, even the headline is weird. It's The headline is, When Stephen Fry Met Johnny Ive, the self-confessed tech geek talks to Apple's newly promoted chief design officer. Um. In an exclusive interview in which Ive's promotion is revealed for the first time, Stephen Fry meets Johnny Ive and his boss, Apple Chief Executive Tim Cook, to talk spaceships, design, and Steve Jobs. Uh, and so, you know, <laughs> so part of the news, it's it's sort of a first-person account of hanging out with Johnny Ive and Tim Cook, which in and of itself is interesting. But to me, the it, and the part that's just odd to me is that this, this is how Apple chose to uh, unveil the the what would you call it the executive change which is that johnny ive has been promoted from senior vice president of design to chief design officer and two of his lieutenants richard howarth and uh alan die have been promoted to new titles vice president uh howarth is vice president of industrial design and uh uh alan <coughs> excuse me sorry about that Alan Dye has been promoted to vice president of UI design. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting because um, Richard Haworth has been working with Johnny Ive for a long time in the industrial design department. They're, they're a very close-knit team, very uh, involved team. And Alan Dye came over with iOS 7, which is just a couple of years. And it's, I mean, it's a super fascinating topic to talk about because the dynamic of ID is that they all did work together for so long and we're so used to collaborating. But with uh, HI, Johnny Ive was new to it and he needed someone who was a strong collaborator in UI, but he didn't go with any of the traditional, like Greg Christie uh, mm. team. He went with Alan Dye for marketing uh, and then right. had to collaborate because he, he doesn't draw pixels as far as I know. Yeah, Greg Christie's an interesting. You know, I don't, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on to talk about this because I feel like you're a little juiced in. Your your at least your mental Rolodex is a little <laughs> bit more uh, up to date than mine on some of the names and stuff like that. But Greg Christie's a great example, like where I mean, I don't even remember what his title was, but I remember certainly I, I, I. They don't tell you one of the weird things about WWDC is that they don't tell you who's presenting. Um. Until you go to the session or until you start playing the session, and there is a credit that tells you who it is who's talking to you, but in advance, they don't tell you. And sometimes who is giving the presentation is actually more of an indication as to what the subject is going to be than the, than the title of the session. Absolutely. I think I last saw Greg Christie. I don't know if he did anything last year, but I saw him do the big presentation on how they designed photos for iOS a couple of years ago. Yes, I remember that one. Right. And it just because it just so happened that, I, you know, the user interface stuff was always more interesting to me and always a little bit more, you know, up my in my uh, wheelhouse, as 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 one might say. Um, I almost said in my wheelbarrow. 
in my wheelhouse, as one would say. Uh, I wound up in Greg's Christie-led sessions uh, many times over the years. I think there, I seem to recall a long time ago, there was even like one that was more like a panel discussion, um, like stuff that they don't really do at WWDC anymore. But yeah, that was but Greg Christie was from back in the day when there was like a general HI team yeah. that was sort of, I guess, really just reported to jobs. Uh, doesn't didn't really have wasn't really part of any kind of chain. Yeah, as far as I know, I mean, HI was always sort of elevated at Apple beyond where they would have been. Like maybe another company that would have been slotted in under some VP of some software product division somewhere. Right. Um. But, you know, and as I've sort of written at it, just dipping my toes in, part of this is that one of the reasons Johnny I've wanted to bring user interface design in under his design team's umbrella is that he wasn't exactly happy with all of the, with the direction that, that interface design had gone at Apple in recent years or in the years prior. I mean, because obviously it was a change. I mean, there's, I mean, whether you love the iOS 7 and Yosemite looks or whether you don't like them or whether you're ambivalent about them, nobody can deny that there was a shift in, in aesthetics. Absolutely. And that, I mean, I think it feels like Scott Forrestal gets blamed for a lot of that. But, you know, it was Steve Jobs' airplane that had the famous stitched leather texture that he right. wanted. And he was a big proponent of that sort of affordance. And Greg Christie, and I'm, I'm blanking on the gentleman's last name, Baz, who... Uh, testified in all the Samsung lawsuits and then subsequently mm. left Apple. Uh, they were intimately involved in the early years of the iPhone design, that whole team and that whole focus. And he really did feel like he wanted something new when he came in. Right. Uh, and, you know, Alan Dye is from, a, you know, came from, as a, in Apple terms, Marcom, uh, which I don't, does that widespread in the industry? I always thought that was sort of an Appleism. No, I uh, I used to work in Marcom. So for me, it's always been normal in an enterprise. Right. Uh, and I think you and I both worked in in uh, print design for a while. And I always found that sort of background. And I know like Mark Edwards did that too. And I always found that sort of right. background really educational when you started moving into digital design. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, Greg Christie uh, left Apple. Um, not immediately, but um, he left in... Uh, their Panzerino story from April 9th to 2014, veteran designer Greg Christie departs. And I don't know that it's as simple. I don't know the story there, but I, you know, whether it was, it, you know, just, well, you picked him instead of me, then I'm out, you know, I don't know. Or if it was just, you know, but Christie had been there for a long time and it's, you know, maybe, you know, he could just put his finger in the wind and tell it was time to go. But yes. And there was definitely, it was not exactly universally, um, seen as the right decision within Apple. Well, I think that's absolutely true. And I think you said that really well. And it, there was a joke around the time that, you know, that Louis Mantia was going to hate the direction for iOS yes. 7. Yeah. But there's a lot of people who, who fell into that camp of liking rich textures and rich designs. And they, they, they had to be on board. And my understanding is there was a really big meeting where this whole direction was announced and not everybody was happy with it. But at the same time, you have people like um, Greg Christie and you have people like Armie Lamara who, who literally did forced marathons, marathons of sprints for years and years and years. And I think there comes to a point where you just, you need to stop, especially if you're at that intense level of doing iOS and a yearly grind schedule. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think bottom line is because Haworth is, you know, industrial design has been under Johnny's group. I mean, that was, in fact, that was Johnny's group. I think yes. in the old days, Johnny's group really was just industrial design. Um, and Holworth has been part of that and clearly, you know, 
Johnny trusts him and they've gotten along. And that whole group has, by all accounts that I've ever read, has always been very tight knit and has gotten along extremely well. That there's, it's not just that they do good work, but that there's a true camaraderie. And I think that's been part of the secret of keeping, because a lot of creative people, they don't go very long term. Bill Watterson famously retired from Calvin and Hobbes. And some people like George Lucas, they end up making prequels, um, which is not the best of their work. And I think the relationship that ID Group had, uh, when, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, they were off somewhere in the boonies and he brought them to IL2 and set them up and made them so important. But that group seems to have sort of kept them all fed and energized and alive for many, many years. Right. It's, you know, it's the holiest of holies, yes. the, you know, the inner sanctum. I mean, that's like the, that is the center of uh, Infinite Loop is that their design lab. I mean, maybe not, it's not the physical center, obviously, but it's the, the you know, it's the place that the least fewest number of people have ever seen. Yeah, very few key cards grant access therein. Right. Um, but... It you know prior to this shakeup where where you know Forstall was was ousted and UI design was placed under Johnny Ive in that group. Prior to that, there were HI. There were people who there was like an HI group, but then there were also like it, it was spread about where somebody might go off on a team and then they were you know like I for example like with I think with the original iPhone and you correct me if I'm wrong because I could I could very much be wrong on this as a basic story but the basic gist was when they committed to doing the iPhone um Forstall was placed in charge of the software and Forstall went around the company cherry picking designers who he wanted and would you know Say, and this is this part is true. I don't know if he did it to everybody, but at least for some people, it was I'm putting together a team to do something, and it's going to be the greatest thing in your career. And I cannot tell you what it is, but if you want to join, you know, you'll work harder than you ever have, but it's going to be great. You're are you in or out? And if they said they're in, then they were on the team. But then it wasn't like there was this one interface group that part of what they did is put together an iPhone team. The iPhone team had its own interface group, cherry picked from around the company. And that it was like that with other projects too, maybe to a lesser degree because the iPhone was, you know, a major, major endeavor. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And I think um, Nitin Ganatra on Debug was talking about how they had to all be uh, disclosed by Steve Jobs. And when he wasn't around, he would have to go into one room, look at the designs, and then walk out to the undisclosed designers and sort of describe to them what they had to do. <laughs> Which is, it makes sense. I can see how it makes sense to Steve Jobs. And it makes, you know, and it obviously worked out for Apple to some degree, but obviously it was not a very, there was an ad hoc nature to user interface design, to software design. Yeah, absolutely. And they had limited design resources and they had to be shared and pooled. And it, it sounds like a really grueling project to get out. Right. And on the one side, I think you could argue, you know, and maybe, but, you know, it's one of those things where it doesn't have to be either or. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive. On the one side, you could say that what Johnny Ive did orchestrated uh, in 2011 with Forstall going out and all of UI design being placed under him and picking new people to run it. Uh, and setting a new style, you could say that it was a power grab, that it was an expansion of just, you know, just ego and, and an expansion of his power. But in a, it, I think in a very reasonable sense, you could say it was a growing up. Like it, it made the process of UI design much more orderly within Apple because it wasn't spread about where each individual project might peel off its own team. 
Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And the thing that's interesting to me is uh, Scott Forstall was widely known as, well, I don't know how widely known, but it was known that uh, if Steve Jobs said, I want leather for this, if Scott Forstall wasn't around, the designer would almost lose his mind because it would just be no, 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 no. And he'd burn through 40, 50, 100 different designs. But if Scott was there, he could say, Steve will, will pick one of these three. And Steve would pick one of those three. And that saved everyone a tremendous hmm. amount of work. But in an Apple where there's no Steve Jobs, the value of that for HI is, is, or the combination, the alchemy of that is very different. And then you have at the same time, someone like Johnny Ive sitting in the wings who was on the record. He'd said before he didn't like the skeuomorphic design. Right. Uh, one of the, arguably the best designer in the world who's not allowed to take control or to, to, to influence, to put his tastes on the software that runs on his hardware. And then Tim Cook comes in, and it always reminded me of what Steve Jobs did when he returned to Apple, when he said, desktop, laptop, professional, consumer. And he came in and he just said, design, services, um, hardware, and software. And he made mm -hmm. Apple very clean that way. Mm -hmm. In a way that it didn't need to be under Jobs. And again, I think that emphasizes that part of what made Forstall talented and essential and so so important to the history of you know especially ios you know every, you know the iphone and ipad um wasn't just that he was good manager and by all accounts he was that he shipped os's on time and they're you know some people would argue they were more reliable etc um but uh, and uh, an uncanny ability he seemed to have is that he seemed it w wasn't just that he had good taste. It was that he knew Steve's taste and that his, you know, uh, uh, they're one of the profiles was something that was written. One of the pieces that was written about Forstall was it's, you know, it might've been an unnamed person who was complaining that like, you know, they'd present stuff to Forstall and Forstall would say, Steve wouldn't like that. And then that was all he had to do is say, Steve wouldn't like it. And that's enough to bounce you back to the drawing board. And that it got tiresome over the time. But I think it, the fact that he lasted so long as a direct report to Steve Jobs in that role shows that he, he was right, that he knew what he would like and what he wouldn't like. And that in a company where you have someone like Steve Jobs, that's an essential skill to get anything done. Because he, uh, and we've both heard the stories like make that blue more beautiful. That, that can burn hours and weeks from a designer. And if you can shortcut that process with someone like Scott Forrest in the middle, that's immensely valuable. Right. Because you couldn't just, it wasn't like you were going to get a chance at, at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday when he says, uh, you know, no, that's not good enough. You don't get a chance at 10 a.m. the next day to also present to yes. him. You've got to wait. You might be stuck waiting a week or longer before you get your next chance to, to get your project in front of him. Yeah, or if, if there's something that's worth fighting for, and there's been stories, you know, like like iTunes on Windows was a great example, but there's a lot of smaller examples. Scott was somebody who could go back to Steve and say, look, I really think we should take another look at this. And then projects that might have otherwise been derailed in a few minutes sometimes begrudgingly get back on track. Right. So in, rather than just merely and being an arbiter of good taste, being an arbiter of Steve Jobs's yeah. t good taste was essential. And I think, you know, in hindsight, clearly not very valuable to Apple after Steve Jobs wasn't no, there. No, because Tim Cook doesn't, Tim Cook's not, a, he's not Steve Jobs, so he doesn't need that service. And Johnny Ive is, he has peerless taste of his own, so he doesn't need that right. service as well. Right. Different taste. Yeah. And it does make you wonder in hindsight what some of, because Ive and, 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 you know, Steve Jobs famously, you know, were, were actually friends more than just collaborators and ate lunch together all the time. And it makes you wonder how much feedback Johnny had given him over the years, you know, 
that was obviously rejected in terms of trying to steer the user interface in a direction more palatable to himself without actually having any kind of actual role in it. I think something you said a couple of years ago was really astute there, because the age before Retina, uh, and especially when mobile devices were really new, swipe to unlock, nobody knew what that was. So making a giant groove in there and making a very elaborate button, it gave you that affordance, that visual clue of how you had to use that. Um, and Or Steve would say, you know, this is a database app. I, no one cares about that. Give it a texture. And that sounds dumb, but if you're stumbling home tired or drunk and you open up an app and you're in contacts and there's no there's nothing to tell you which contacts it is, maybe you're trying to call a cab in game center and you just you just don't know so there were a lot of usability reasons and just philosophical reasons why i think that started off but then as you transition to retina that sort of texture doesn't hold up anymore yeah i think it's a combination i emphasize that my years ago my thought was a lot more about the retina non-retina and that you needed the other thing was in addition to just the affordances of knowing what to do and having that slide to unlock which is you know to me like just put that design itself not even the whole iphone but just put that slide to unlock itself put that in the museum because that is it 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 it, it made people wow people wanted to buy the phone just from slide to unlock and it taught and it, you how to use it right um I, I, my thought a couple of years ago was simply about the fact that even at 163 pixels per inch, which was pretty high for the time in 2007, it still wasn't that high. It was only high compared to the 120 to 130 ish pixels per inch we had on our Macs at the time, um, that you needed to use those sort of Photoshop style user interface designs just to make it look good. So that as soon as you looked at it, you thought, Ooh, that looks cool. Because something like iOS 7, it just doesn't look that great on non-retina. There's nothing about it that makes you go, wow. But I think that the affordance stuff was important, too. Because I think the basic idea with the original iPhone um, was that, like, Steve Jobs used the analogy when he introduced it that... Uh, here's all these other phones of the time, and look what they've got. They've got all these buttons. But here's the thing about all these hardware buttons. It reduces the amount of space you have. Now the screen's only this big. And then number two, a year from now, if we come up with this great idea for a new feature, we're stuck with the buttons we had already come up with a year ago. And that we've solved this problem years and years ago. It's called a bitmap screen. And then you can make all the buttons you want whenever you want and only have the buttons that you need right now on screen. So we'll do the whole thing. We'll just be a screen. And we'll make the buttons in software. But I think that the basic idea was make the buttons look like fake hardware. Mm -hmm. And that in every single app, it's like a dedicated device simulating a dedicated hardware device for that feature. Yeah, and the Braun calculator is maybe a famous example of that. It, it, people, they, the thought was that people wouldn't know how to approach just a blank piece of glass. And if you made it look like something they were familiar with, at least they'd start tapping around and then discover how it worked. Right, or the, um, the call recorder. Yes. I know I didn't, that wasn't in the first OS, but you know certainly was in you know one of the early ones. Yeah. Um, the Compass is another one. Real to real in the podcast app was probably the last big example of that. Right, and even the ones that didn't have an uh, you know something like uh, Mail, which didn't really have like a a brown style you know gadget that you could compare it to. Just the fact that there were these little three D effects between the 
you know, the keyboard and the content area, it just ever so gently suggested that this is what it would look like if you had a hardware device that was just for email. And the original, at least the first versions, they didn't composite anywhere nearly as well as later versions, which is why we didn't get wallpaper until I think iOS three or I think iOS four right. actually. So they they had a lot they had a lot fewer things they could do visually. Right. Well, the basic and the basic idea I always thought with the original home screen was to make it look like at the home screen level by having just a black wallpaper. The idea was you've got this like device that is sort of like a calculator where each icon is a button. Right. It's like this, like a, like a dial pad where instead of having numbers, right? Like an old phone, the phones that they were replacing, the, the basic interface was a, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and a zero bottom dial pad. The dial pad on the iPhone was, you know, these 11 apps. Yeah. That's a really good insight. Uh, absolutely. It, it was. Also different than some competitive products when, not initially, but when, for example, Android would later put widgets on the home screen, it always felt like Apple never wanted the home screen to be a destination, just a gateway. Right. It was just a dial pad yeah. where you dial up whichever app you needed the device to transform itself into. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I kind of, you know, we go back, <laughs> dialing all the way back to this news about Johnny Ive and, and Greg Christie, or not Greg Christie, Alan but, Dye. you know, well. And Island Die and, and Richard Holworth. Well, and, you know, guys like Christie leaving. Yes. Um, it, it turned UI design into something that works exactly like industrial design had always worked at Apple. Like, and in theory, they could have done the same thing by not putting it under Johnny Ive, but just by picking somebody else like Greg Christie and setting up UI design as a separate peer to industrial design, right? They could have named, instead of putting it all under Johnny Ive, they could have said, Johnny, you're still in charge of industrial design. You design all the hardware. And now we've named this guy, uh, could have been Greg Christie, could have been anybody else. You are like the Johnny Ive of UI design. And you'll set up your own lab and you guys will design all the user interfaces. Didn't have to be in one, but it, you know, but I do think that either way, it was the right way to go moving forward without jobs at the helm um, as CEO, as somebody has to be in charge of the taste. Yes. Uh, some, you know, it had to be done. Yeah, no, I think that's very astute. And I, I think the, you, you could see clearly that it, right away, the big, the first big project that came out was iOS 7. And when they did the advertising for the iPhone 5C, um, they had better together as their slogan. They wanted to show that the palettes matched over, that the, the hardware and the software being together was an important thing for them. And that's probably the only reason. Uh, obviously, that had to have been. Uh, driven by Johnny Ive, but that that was the benefit of putting all that stuff together. Yeah, and I think the watch is the culmination of that because say what you want about the watch and what you know whether you like the the you know where you think the watch stands in terms of you know is it better than the original iPhone is it better than the original iPad whatever I don't think to me there's no doubt that the hardware and software integration are tighter with the watch than any any other device and and talking about ui design in particular that the ui just doesn't make any sense except in the context of this watch 
Yeah, and it's it is something brand new, and it's also a category where traditionally Apple had ten years of smartphones to look at, or ten years of tablets of Windows uh, tablet PC to look at. Watches were still very new. You had the Pebble, you had a couple Samsung watches, but you know those those came later, probably after Apple had to do a lot of their original concepts for the watch. So it's a project where Apple had to not just identify problems and see like this. We hate this because, um, and they already loved watches, but they had to sort of figure out how to make the watch a computer and not just a, a digital mechanism anymore. Yeah. Uh, famously, well, maybe not famously, maybe people don't know this, but um, in the development of the original iPhone, the Forstall's software team didn't see the prototypes of the hardware. They were developing, you know, they're like, they knew the size of the screen and they knew, obviously knew it was going to be a touch screen, but they didn't get to see what the prototypes look like. And which is a little bit less important. I feel like the software team just knowing, okay, it's a touch screen that is, you know, 320 by 480 and, you know, it's going to be a piece of glass and you'll touch it. Um, them working blind on the hardware is a little bit less meaningful than the fact that the hardware team didn't get to see the software like, and you've, you've, I know, you know, this there's, and maybe it was even on eBay where like a prototype yeah. got out. Like there was this like super janky looking pro, you know, like stand in OS. Yes. <laughs> it was so uh, ugly. I think that's because uh, the, the, the iPhone was originally purple. And I think that was skank was the uh, stand in one. we should try to find the link after this show skank was like the code name for the the stand-in os i think i don't know if it's just a stand-in os or it's the it's the sort of the development um the stuff that runs all the technical information that you need to grab from the electronics to do a lot of things (laughs) right it was sort of like a diagnostic os i guess you could say uh and purposefully did not look good at all it was, you know, made to look bad so that it wasn't like they lied to them and said, hey, this is the OS we're making. They're like, you guys don't get to see the OS, make the hardware. And here's this ugly diagnostic OS where you can test to make sure that the, you know, Wi-Fi antenna is doing what the Wi-Fi antenna is supposed to do, and et cetera, and so forth. Yeah, and I think even some of the earlier prototypes were just components. And I think this has been true for years, even with iPads. They're just components literally um, bolted down on boards. Yes. Yeah, Definitely. Um, did you ever see like the, um, like the early iPod, uh, prototype? No. Uh, it's, yeah, it's really big and it, you know, clearly it was never supposed to fool anybody into thinking it was the product, but it's, um, yeah, it's just like a bunch of, uh, things on a board and there's a dial that you, you know, that was the click wheel, but it just looked like a knob, you know, off to the side that you would spin around. Well, it's smart because if you have to wait, for, I mean, you, you can't. You can't have one follow the other. You have to be doing both at the same time. So you have to use them in some sort of development state. Right. But I, it's, it seems very clear to me. And I, I would be shocked to find out otherwise because it's with it, you know, was all one, you know, Johnny Ive design lab. But it's, it seems very clear to me that the watch was developed with the software and the hardware at the same time. And it seems even beyond that because the there is some siloing, like you have Kevin Lynch in charge of the software, not Craig Federighi. But it, it also seems like the people who do messaging for iOS are in touch with the people who are doing it for the watch. And, and there's not sort of that strict divide that there used to be. And that results in all this stuff working together, maybe not perfectly, but very well. Right. I do think I think Lynch reports to Federighi, though. Um, but the idea was that, you know, rather than spread Federighi yeah. thinner than he is, that, you know, they needed somebody who is just going to be, you know, you know, what would they, I, I don't know if he was, I don't know how, there's the Apple term, the DRI, directly yeah. responsible individual, but at least he, I, 
you know, somebody has to be the DRI for the OS itself, if not the design of the OS. And the actual, like, it's all coded up, you know, here's the build, and the build is, you know, this is the 1.0 for Apple Watch. And that was Kevin Lynch. Yeah, and I think someone also, and this was definitely Scott Forrest, someone has to have that single act of will to birth something new. And it's arguable whether the same person should mature that product, but you, you really have to have that person whose only job it is to make that product launch. Right. So... With the Ive story, I I have to admit I'm guilty as charged. Where I, my first read through of the article was, I took a deep breath and thought, "Ooh, does is this the first step to him going out the door?" Um, and I, it was just like I wrote, and it was like I read too much into it. I think, but that whole thing that he was going to travel more, I really did read at first. My first take, and I, as I you know when I linked to it on Daring Fireball, I thought that meant he might move back to England. Um, and a lot of that was based on my recollection of that of a 2011 story in the London Times that said that uh, while negotiating a new contract with Apple, I've wanted to put in, you know, be authorized to work from London uh, or wherever he would live in England, and that you know Tim Cook and whoever else at Apple was like, no, you've got to stay here, and that there was a source of conflict, which in hindsight was the only one report of it. And then it seemed it's one of those things where it seems like there's there were a whole bunch of stories about it. But every other story you can find about it is the London Times is reporting that blah, 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 Johnny Ive wanted to move to England, that there wasn't anybody else who said it. Their source for this was completely anonymous. It certainly wasn't Johnny Ive. Um, and asking around over, you know, in the last week, it seems to me like that story was bullshit and was sort of a, a source of uh, consternation at Apple at the time because they knew it was bullshit. It was bullshit, but they didn't want to say that it was bullshit just because they're Apple and they, they don't talk about such things. Well, I had the same thought as you initially, just it, because it was a British paper, it was Stephen Fry. Like it just, I, I think that made of, might have influenced me, but yeah. And, and not moving back necessarily, but like if he were to spend the summers there, which is a right. couple months or three months, that seemed perfectly logical to me given his new role. Yeah, that's another factor in it. Um, the fact that it wasn't a UK paper, um, the fact that it was, you know, wasn't announced in a press release. Yeah. Um, it was the day the I, closed. I forgot about, uh, uh, and I've since linked to it. I linked to it yesterday on Daring Fireball. But I forgot that in 2003, Avi uh took a promotion, yeah. whether you want to put quotes around it or not, to uh, a title, Chief Software Technology uh, uh, Officer, I think, C CSTO. I forgot about that. Uh, even though I just reread the story of it in the Becoming Steve Jobs, which, but the thing that I had forgotten was that the title started with Chief. I I just because somehow, like the four letter CSTO, <laughs> yeah. like if they had promoted him to Chief Technology Officer, just CTO, I I would have remembered that in a way that I didn't with Chief Software Technology Officer. Like somehow. That sounded ceremonial to me right away. And then even the description of it in the press release where Apple announced it sounded a little bit, it just really, it, it almost seemed almost definite that it was sort of a, a stepping aside. It was like inventing a title for him. Yeah. So I kind of, I should have remembered it, but I think in the back of my mind, like subconsciously I did, and that it also fueled my, because it was, you know, that was 2003 and that was when Bertrand Serlet. Serlet, Serlet. Yep, Charles Serlet. 
Well, I say Sirlet, 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 Sirlet. I'm go, a Quebecer, yep. so I'm doing it wrong. All right, Sirlet, Bertrand. I just know him as Bertrand. Everybody yep. called him Bertrand. So Bertrand got promoted to senior vice president of software engineering and reported directly to Steve Jobs, yeah. uh, which I really do think is sort of a key to the difference between Tavanian going to CSTO and Johnny Ive going to chief design officer, where the people who are getting promoted underneath him to take more responsibility still report directly to Ive, not to Tim Cook or to somebody else. So Tavanian, he was essentially non-essential at that point. Like Steve Jobs had a direct line of communication through his software stack, and it made Tavanian superfluous, and that was not a position that Steve Jobs suffered lightly. Right. And it's actually kind of an interesting... Uh, let me see if I can fish this up here. I have this saved somewhere, I hope. Well, um, oh, maybe not. Uh, the gist of it is as told in the um, Becoming Steve Jobs that it, it it wasn't necessarily that at the time that he immediately, that Tavanian really wanted to like, the, hey, ease my way out the door. He really just wanted to get away from the day-to-day -day stuff and kind of work on blue sky stuff. Yeah. Um, but that it just did not work with the way Steve Jobs uh, uh, worked at the company. So here's the passage from uh, Becoming Steve Jobs. Uh, it was unquestionably a promotion, but it turned out to be a job without much of a portfolio. Tavanian found himself with little concrete responsibility. He felt out of the loop and realized that his new role would not work. Quote, being a pseudo-individual staff person working for Steve doesn't work because he already has all the answers. He didn't like it when I would be in a meeting where he was reviewing a product and I would have an opinion. He just didn't like it. And he grew to not like that I could be a senior person like that without having day-to-day -day responsibilities to deliver something, he says. Tim Cook, now Apple CEO, says that he worried about Tavanian leaving and urged Steve in 2004 to figure out another challenge to keep the brilliant software engineer at Apple. Steve looked at me, Cook remembers, and goes, I agree he's really smart, but he's decided he doesn't want to work. I've never found in my whole life that you could convince someone who doesn't want to work hard to work hard. Mm -hmm. Another time, this is my favorite part of it. <laughs> Another time, shortly after Steve had learned that Tavanian had taken up golf, Steve carped to Cook that something was really amiss. Golf, he thundered incredulously. Who has time for golf? <laughs> yeah, well, he's, he famously wouldn't even let people join boards of directors. They, <laughs> right. they should be too busy at Apple to do that. Well, I've also heard that they used to, when they used to have their offsites, he wouldn't let them have it anywhere where there was a golf course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was sort of anti-golf. Which, golf. <laughs> which is super interesting because in the article, uh, as, as strangely staged as it was, they made sure to mention that Johnny Ive still had, had things on his plate to do like the store redesigns like uh, campus two and, and other yeah. products yeah which is a huge difference right and it's yeah. um you know it just a, a, an enormous still i still think even with this and with these lieutenants taking over sort of direct day-to-day -day responsibility for ui design and industrial design he still is spread pretty thin but i think he's spread a little bit less than by a, administrative stuff I think that's a that's a key thing we've seen recently too. Is that Apple? Uh, if you look at what Eddie Q is responsible for, that's that's almost a, an entire. That is an entire company. It's got its own marketing. It's got its own software development. Yeah. It's got it, and they're bringing in people to sort of help him do that. We've marketing is 
always been stretched really thin, but they've got more people in there lately. And it just seems like it's it's a little more sane than it used to be. And the responsibilities as they've grown, uh, the company didn't scale to account for that. And the amount of work that the people at the top of those those organizations had to do was just becoming ludicrous. Yeah. Um, so I think I have since concluded, you know, I mean, who knows? We'll see a couple of years. We'll let us know. But I think that this actually is another one of those cases where as weird as the story was where it came out and it's I, my guess is this weirdness was sort of this is the way Johnny wanted to do it. And so, OK, this is how they did it, um, that it really is what they say it is. It's a promotion it's a recognition, maybe it may be almost like a belated promotion where it's recognizing the authority he already wielded within the company. Um, and that he's not going anywhere. Well, that was the interesting thing because there was, there was, I think at least three discrete reactions to the news when it first came out. One was that this was Johnny Ive putting one foot out the door, you know, getting ready to wind yeah. down. The other was that this was Johnny Ive consolidating power because there was that old quote uh, from Steve Jobs where he said no one had more operational power at Apple besides himself than Johnny Ive even though they had a chief operating officer, which is, you know, just, it shows sort of his position in the company. And then the sort of the third one was like the Wall Street take where they're, they're still upset that Apple doesn't disclose Johnny Ive because he was a senior vice president with direct reports and certainly one of the top 10 paid people at Apple and his salary is not disclosed. But now as a chief design officer with very few direct reports, you could argue that it no longer needs to be. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, who knows about that? I know that I I've, I think I only tweeted about it, but maybe I blogged about it. But it 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 has a, it has struck me as weird over the years when they disclose executive payments, who's on the list and who's not. Like Arnt's had to be last year because her like the this I guess you just call it loop it under a signing bonus. But she got an enormous amount up front. Like it's not her annual salary, but she was just, you know, paid so much in her first year because as like a signing bonus for taking the job that hers her compensation had to be disclosed. Yeah, it's, it um, sounds complicated. I read a Fortune article, I forget who wrote it, but they were saying that it's the top ten um compensations on the team but if they don't have policy making positions then they're not included because they don't affect the what wall street cares about with the company and it just seems like a mess yeah it's, it really does um uh, and you know my conclusion is really and, and you know i don't want to be i'm not trying to be cute but i i more or less if you just listen to tim cook's words in the internal memo we're announcing the deal describing what johnny's responsible for that he was responsible for hardware design and now he's responsible for ui design and packaging and he's supervising the design of the headquarters and uh the retail in that new yorker profile said he was doing the ads too i mean it really is a steve jobs level of, of breadth yeah, I don't quite think ads like marketing, like TV spots and uh, like magazine ads. No, but I think like those but videos the, that he does. Right, like the videos for the keynote. Yeah. Um, so even though he's not on stage in the keynote, because he, I really do, and I think it's as simple as that he is just is not keen as to be a public speaker. Even though the few times he has done it, he's done fine. I think it's like he just enjoys it so little and there's so much prep that's involved that he'd rather not. But instead, his involvement in the presentations is literally supervising and if not editing, you know, with his own hand, the videos. Yeah. Um, and this seems to suit everyone's best interest because it 
it, it gets rid of the stuff that Johnny Ive doesn't seem that happy to be doing, which is the day-to-day managerial stuff. But it also recognizes, it almost like Apple's recognizing the job he was already doing. Uh, and that sort of assures his future in the company because you don't want him to either get bored or to feel like he's finished or to want something different. You want to keep him energized and engaged. But at the same time, it puts these two pillars underneath him so that if anything does happen or, or he decides to leave, you, you have a, a stable functional organization that can keep going underneath him. And that's really yeah. important to Apple. Yeah, I, and that's exactly, I do think that it makes a more sustainable organization. Now, would that mean that they would have to appoint a new chief design officer afterwards? I don't know. I don't I, even I, have a new COO yet. Right, exactly. Uh, although I think that's coming. Yeah. Uh, uh, and we can maybe just hold that thought and I'll do a, a sponsor break here and then we can, we can talk about that. Um, but bottom line is I don't think Johnny Ive is going anywhere. I think this is sort of a, um, you know, uh, this is sort of a, con- uh, uh, like making it official that Johnny Ive and Tim Cook have a relationship like Tim Cook and Steve Jobs did, yes. like where there are two leaders of this company. And it's a little different this time because the other way, the guy with the, you know, the, the CEO, CEO, right? Like, it's it's a little different, but somebody has to be CEO. But exactly, I think in a way though that makes Ive different from from Jobs is I don't think Johnny Ive would ever want to be CEO. No, I yeah. think part of this is that he's getting away from some of the stuff that a CEO would have to do, some of this administrative stuff. Uh, you know, Johnny Ive has no interest in negotiating with uh, CBS Television no, yeah, to get them exactly. on Apple TV, right? So it's you know it. it it just comes down to the personalities and the individual talent that they have, but that he is as important to cook as cook was important to Steve jobs. Yeah. It's like, you need those two sides of the coin. It doesn't really matter which side is on top at any given time, but you need those two sides. And the other thing that I thought was really good is the projects that Apple has coming up like campus two and like project Titan. Those are things that Johnny Ive seems really interested in, which makes it seem further unlikely that it's anything other than a better positioning of all the talent they have in place. What's project Titan. That's the, the automotive stuff. Oh, well, we can talk about that. (laughs) Let me take a break, though, and uh, thank our first sponsor, and it is our good friends at Fracture. You guys know Fracture, longtime sponsor of the show. You guys keep buying their pictures, so they keep coming back to sponsor it more, so keep doing it. But if you haven't heard of it, you need to be reminded. Fracture is a service. You go to their website, and you send them your photos from any camera that you've, whatever you've taken them with. You pick a size, could be small. They've got real small ones fit on your desk, could be big. They've got big 23 by 29 inch things you can mount on your wall. Uh, you decide whether you want it rectangular or square. It's up to you. They've got all the sizes, all the aspect ratios you could want. They take your photos and they print them directly on glass, right on the glass, right on the surface. And they look amazing. They look like no other thing that I've ever seen. Um, they look so good that even no matter what the content of the photo is, when you hang them up in your wall and you have friends over or family over, people, they see them out of the corner of the eye and they say, how did you do that? There's like a, how did you do that aspect to it? Where at first they, they might think it's a regular photo, but then they realize it's edge to edge and there is no frame around it. And then they might think, well, maybe it's like, uh, like a LCD type thing. And then they realize that it's not, it's not glowing. It's a real picture, like just an artifact. Uh, it's, it's stunning. And so it's one of those things that it's like, 
I can tell you this because I have them hanging around my house and I've had people say, wow, how did you get that? And then I go into the same spiel that I tell you about on a podcast telling them in person, you should go there and uh, buy them yourself. Uh, it, it really, you have to see it to believe it. And it's one of the hardest things I think for them to get across because when you go to their website, you don't get that. There's no way to show you on a website a picture of a thing to show you what it really looks like when you're looking at it. A picture of a picture isn't the same thing as actually looking at the picture. Really, really impressive. And you can get started at a really low price. Their prices are fantastic considering the quality of what you get. Um, take your pictures. Father's Day is coming up. I keep saying it, it's a great, great gift for people in, the, uh, in your family. Right now, as you listen to this, you've got plenty of time to get stuff done for Father's Day. So go make a note as soon as you're done listening to the show. Go to FractureMe.com, F-R-A-C-T-U-R-E-Me.com. And remember this code, Daring Fireball. All one word, Daring Fireball. Use that code and you will save 15% off your order. So my thanks to Fracture. Go there, get your get your dad, or your grandfather, or your husband, um, uh, some pictures for for Father's Day. My thanks to them. All right. So the car. Yeah. That's an interesting thing. Thinking about in the context of Johnny Ive being promoted to chief design officer, because it's. You think, well, that's just all uh, industrial design. But there's, you know, I think that if Apple is going to do a car, it is absolutely going to be completely, you know, it, it, the computerification of car design. Yeah. Like there's no way that it's not going to involve both UI design and industrial design. No, I would not be surprised if you know, the same kinds of engineers who worked on iPhones and other products are working on that now. Right. It's no guarantee that it's ever going to ship because I do think, and you know, that thousand no's for every yes mantra, some, some of those no's come late. Uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago that, you know, that, that TV just didn't ship for year after year after year. Just no, no one was interested in shipping it. They didn't think it was a great product. So it just right. sits in the lab. Right. But there was there, yeah. there was, there were TVs. And I think in hindsight, poor Gene Munster. Um, but I do think that that's one of the reasons Munster was so convinced. And one of the things that analysts, Wall Street analysts like him do is develop sources in the supply chain. And the ones who are most accurate, like uh, Ming... Yeah, Ming-Chi Kuo. Ming-Chi... What's it? Ming-Chi Kuo. Ming-Chi Kuo, yeah. Ming-Chi Kuo. Um, you know, and, and some of the stunningly accurate things that he's had in recent years, I think clearly come from the supply chain, you know, that, that he's talking to, um, like he, for example, nailed it on the screen sizes of the iPhone six and six plus. And I think it was because he had sources at sharp and whoever else is making the displays for those things. Um, I think Munster figured out through supply chain that Apple was making TV prototypes and then just extra, you know, it was, and which is pretty, you know, that they weren't just uh, things that Apple had made in the Johnny Ive lab, which never comes, you know, nothing ever leaks out of there. But they were in discussions with with manufacturers, and wheels were starting to turn over there just to get things set up. And he just took that to mean, well, then that's a sure thing because I think with most companies, once you get to that point, it's going to come out, and they're going to see how it does. 
Yeah. And Apple's really different. And Apple prototypes almost everything. Like if if people like you or I can can think about it or talk out loud about it on a website, Apple has thought about it and investigated it, whether it's like touchscreen Macs or ARM Macs or televisions, all of that stuff. When they when they don't ship something is because they've made an informed decision based on actual experience with prototype products that they don't want to ship it. Right. And so, you know, there's no guarantee that a car is ever going to ship, but I definitely, you know, oh God, I'm, this can be a terrible pun, but I definitely think the wheels are turning. Well, if you look at it now, like I, I was looking at, at cars the other day and even within the same brand, the interfaces are completely different from one model to the other. There's, and that just to me says there's no vision for how this stuff should be done. Oh, I definitely think so. It's I, I've seen that. I don't. I've had my car since late 2006, so it's been a while since I've shopped for a car. But I remember the last time I did and driving like two cars from the same brand and being just in the you know, not that it was driving my decision as to what to buy, but you know, just absolutely rolling my eyes at the inconsistencies. I, I bought my last car uh, right before the advent of the infotainment system, the connected stuff where you could just plug your iPhone or Android phone into it. So I went to my dealer and I said, can I just upgrade to the next year's uh, radio center? And they said, no. And I said, well, what do I have to do? And they said, buy another car. And that to me is probably one of those things that Apple just thinks is ludicrous. Like it should be as easy to update what runs on your car as it is to what runs on your phone. Right. I mean, and not that you would be able to, you know, like the, you should be able to get like a software update. Yes. Right. That that's what you should be able to get for your car. Not that you should be able to take the actual computer out. And at a certain level, Apple is a, Hey, you have to buy, you just have to buy a new phone. Yeah. Uh, company. But on another level, you know, there are significant features that you get, you know, two years after buying your phone by upgrading it. Yeah. And I think absolutely. that and the, the car same industry thing. is just so far behind. In, and and you know, something like CarPlay, CarPlay, uh, Scott Forslow was working on that years ago and it just took forever to get to market and that shows i think the the slowness of that sort of a process and if apple's going to do that uh the way tesla for example had to build up their their car process we're talking a years and years of of experimentation never mind a release schedule yeah it's it's on a much longer time scale but i've heard it's not it's not my original analogy i don't know who i'm stealing it from but that car play is to apple's car what the rocker was to the iphone well, Car- Even though the rocker was like one year before the iPhone. CarPlay, uh, to me, is really interesting because it's, it's part of this huge transition that Apple's undergoing where before we had all this pull interface where you'd have to go to some other place. to. Well, if we could just transition to apps for a second. An app was this discrete bundle, this little binary you downloaded on your phone and you would tap it and all the functionality would be inside that. And the same way WebKit is now HTTP apps everywhere. It doesn't really, it's not all bundle in Safari anymore. With iOS 8, all the UI kit stuff is sort of an extensibility means that all an app functionality is now everywhere. You can share to Pinterest from a share extension. You can use one password from an action extension. So the idea of those apps has sort of been torn apart. And not only that, not only can I just pull the notification center down and use pcalc there without going to the app, I can now shoot that app to my Apple Watch or shoot that app to my car. It's like, you know, Marco's Overcast is running on cars now. And I think that fundamentally changes what, it, what it's going to mean to be software. And I think CarPlay was sort of one of the things Apple was doing to experiment with what that what that's going to be going forward. Yeah. Um, it's, no, but that, I'm just trying to decide what to go to next. We could go to, I'll give you a pick and then we'll do the other one. We could go to uh, Google IO, which is past tense, sort of, I guess it's technically like wrapping up its second day right now. Uh, or we could go to WWDC. I say we do the past first. We'll do Google. IO. Yes. 
Um, and we'll do WWDC expectations afterwards. So Google I.O. Keynote yesterday seemed to run about seven hours. <laughs> Always they were good this year. I mean, I think last year just went on forever. This year it was just long. Um, announced a lot. Some of it, quite, you know, pretty interesting to me. Um, I guess, I guess maybe it was a little more focused than usual. It was restrained. I mean, I remember some years where it would just almost seem like every five minutes it'd be an entirely new initiative or, or API or something being dropped, and you'd never hear about them again. And this year, yeah. it seemed like they stuck to bigger, more important things. Yeah, and stuff that they truly expect to ship. Yeah, I feel you know, and you know, not that Apple invented only talking about stuff that's really going to ship, yeah. but I think it's a little more Apple-y direction. Um, the whole thing was the whole thing had a much more. Uh, and people get really upset uh, when we talk about this stuff, but it it had a much more Apple sort of sensibility to it, especially with the new Android features. Uh, and you, you could see this over time where originally to get market share, Google had to make everything open and market it as open as possible. But now from Google Play services to store reviews uh, to a lot of the programs that they're doing, they, they need to exert a certain amount of control just to just to improve the experience. And it looked like they're doing that again with this keynote. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and there's a lot of little things, but one of those things that I noticed is, um, when they talked about, it's a program that uh, to me is very interesting, but to me, I, to my knowledge hasn't taken off yet, but I think has a good chance to is Android one, yes, which is their, uh, version of Android that is meant for quote unquote developing countries. But it's for people who don't have, who cannot afford five or six hundred dollar phones, and so what if they can only afford, um, you know, a hundred dollar phone or a hundred and twenty five dollar phone? How good can you make that today in twenty fifteen? And the thing that struck me about that as being Apple like, not that Apple is going after that market has any product that they don't. There is no iPhone that's targeted at that market. But the way that it's Apple like to me is that it's not a here's a version of Android that runs on lower powered devices. It's a a whole thing like a device certification program, and the only way you get it is if you go along with them. And if you do, you're get you. you Google has Apple style control over the OS where you get the latest ver. You know, you're getting Android. Uh, you know, lollipop, and then you'll get the Android M update when it comes out because the only way to participate in this as an OEM is to go along with what Google is saying. Yeah, I, I there, there's there was a lot to unpack for me, and one thing that that I, maybe everyone knew this, but me going into this, but uh, Apple's been starting their their keynotes by reaffirming their corporate mantras, and Tim Cook does that job. He's like the moral compass of Apple, and he talks about Apple's North Star being making great products. And Google, they used to be, don't don't be evil, but more and more often now they're saying, you know, Google is to or Google's purpose is to organize the world's data and make it easily accessible to everybody. And once I said that, I started watching the entire keynote through that lens. And the thing, like the the optimist in me is like, wow, Google's using all this money that they make to bring technology, whether it's internet in balloons or low-cost phones, to everybody. But then the cynic in me was saying that if they really want to collect all the world's data, they need to have everybody in the world giving them their data. And then when you look at everything they announced, all these services, especially the ones that are really cool, are sort of what you feed, what you the drugs you give somebody so that they'll go and feed the beast for you. Hmm. Um, and there's a profound difference between Apple wanting to make great products so that they can sell them at a high margin and make a good experience so you'll buy the next product, where Google has to make these services that are so good that you'll be willing to give them your data on an ongoing basis. 
and it's it's sort of a similar a similar strategy. You can argue how successful each one is, but they're both phenomenally successful, uh, but so different from each other. Yeah, and it, it's you know the cynic in me always asks, and it, you know with any company, but you know how are they going to make money on this? How do they think they're going to make money on this? And with a lot of their stuff, it's very dubious to me. Like with the whole internet balloons thing, and it to me the, the honest way to make money on it would be to somehow take a share of what they're charging the people, even if it's, you know, compared to like us carriers, even if people there are only paying a few dollars a month for self service, you know, by taking a share of that, then they're making money. The cynical way to do it would be if part of the terms of service for getting internet service through the Google balloons is that Google gets to see and index all of the traffic going through. The thing that reminded me of a part of this is I remember a few years ago, there was a Google ad about a father um, setting up a, a some kind of Google account, it might have been a Gmail account for his baby and starting to, to document the baby's life. And there was pushback on that saying, how can you try to encourage people to put their children's data in there? But now we live in a time where they just give Google accounts to schools and people say, thank you. Yeah. Uh, and they say they're not going to, they're not going to. Um, use that data. And I take them at their word. But I used to work in advanced analytics, and the actual data is not always that important. It's the it, it, you, you get vast quantities of data. There's all sorts of patterns and behaviors and market basket analytics and and um, just trends and and things that you can find in that data. That's immensely valuable. And Google showed that with things like the machine learning and the neural networks on how their driverless cars can now start picking out other cars and pedestrians because they're accumulating enough data and enough patterns and enough behaviors to understand that. And that that's going to be immensely valuable to them. So even if there's no direct return on a business unit um, nature for things like the balloons, uh, all that stuff will feed their core business, which is collecting and making use of all that data. Well, the question though is where do you, you know, the thing about web search is that there is a place a very obvious place to show the ad which is right there at the top of the results yeah. and it's you know i i think they say web search you know search advertising um is 90 percent of google's remains 90 percent of google's revenue i think they really it, it all comes down to that top spot in the results um uh, and in some sense, okay, it's simply giving internet to people around the world through the balloons. They don't need to make any money from the balloons because those people are going to search on Google and they're going to see those ads in the results. Um, I see that, though, as, as such diminishing returns. And just for the cynical reason that if you're in an impoverished country, the ads, those ad views just cannot be that valuable. And that you're chasing, instead of chasing pennies, you're chasing fractions of a penny. And you, you know, it's not that it means that Google's going anywhere, but it means that it's not, I just don't see how that's a serious source of any kind of growth. Yeah, I think that's a lot to do with why you see them branching out. And again, like when I, my old job was doing this analytics stuff and it wasn't, it wasn't really about search, but there were other ways of, of making huge amounts of money. So for example, if you go into a quickie mart and you buy Coke, the quickie, the Coke has no idea that you bought it, but the quickie mart does. And if you have a company that can go in and take that information, you can sell that back to Coke and then you can sell it to Pepsi. And if they bought Doritos with it, you can then sell that information to Doritos. And they, those companies use it when they decide where they're going to put their products on shelves or what combination 
operations or what sales or all, all this stuff is immensely valuable to companies who want to get into these emerging markets. And uh, Apple and a lot of companies have talked about the value of the BRIC countries, but especially China's growing now, Russia's growing now, Brazil's growing now, and they're going to have huge economies. And I think having actionable intelligence on those economies will be valuable. And if Google is the one brokering all that, then that makes Google as opposed to Facebook, who's also doing these uh, emerging market internet initiatives, uh, it gives them a better position. My understanding is that uh, at Quickie Mart in particular, Buzz Cola has an exclusive. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even need to do any analytics. <laughs> I don't mean to sound like I'm down on go. I just think that like you, everybody. Some people think that you're not paying for this stuff, and whether you're paying with money or with uh, time or with attention or with data, you're always paying, and you just have to be. To understand the cost that it, that it, your data is is valuable like money is valuable and whether it's right. worth it for you to make that exchange right so speaking of paying for stuff that leads me directly to one of the top products that they announced at io this week that really caught my attention was google photos so google photos is pretty much google's version of iphone iCloud photo library. And I don't mean that I, I wrote that and I don't mean it in the sense that I think they copied it. I think it was inevitable for both companies to do this. The basic idea was so obvious that of course they were both going to do it. And it just so happened that, you know, Apple beat them to it. Um, it feels like the right solution. Yeah. Which is basically you sign up and you have all of your devices where you deal with photos uh, signed in and then all of your photos go to through one cloud library and are therefore available on all your devices. And to save space that you don't have, once you have that, and if the truth is in the cloud, meaning your true library is the one that's in your cloud account, then your devices don't have to have all of your photos. And if you have 32 gigabytes of photos and videos in your personal library, you only need a fraction of them on your device at any time. And the rest can all be represented by truly tiny thumbnails and then drawn down from the cloud uh, on demand when you want to open them. Um, you know, yeah, com it's super smart. I mean, we used to call that, uh, you used to do that in storage a long time ago. It was called Nearline, where you had all the frequently high value data, frequently accessed high value data uh, right on the on the device because you needed to access it all the time and it had to be fast. But everything else was stored just uh, a step away on much cheaper storage and in much bigger capacity. And you would just get it uh, when you needed it. And it was very infrequent that you would actually need it. And this is the same. So all the photos you've taken recently, all the ones that are your favorites, all the ones that you access uh, all the time, are just right there on your device. So you tap them and they're there. The ones that you maybe haven't looked at in three years, you know, and you probably won't look at very often. If you have to tap that and it takes a second to download, nobody really cares. So they have two, but the big difference to me, the fundamental difference is that they're saying unlimited uh, storage for all of as many photos and videos as you want with the asterisk on unlimited being that they recompress your photos in a hot, you know, in other words, and then they're not quite, I, I don't, I, maybe somewhere there's a technical dot, but in other words, they're, they're using J, JPEG recompression to store good enough versions of your photos up to 16 megabytes. Yeah. Um, and you can pay for something which they call original, which gives you the original, the access to the original uncompressed photograph. But I think even then it's limited to 16 megabytes. I, I could be wrong. I wasn't sure. It sounded like if you were willing to pay for the storage, you just got your photos. But they didn't say anything about raw either, which I know Apple stressed. Yes, which, you know, kind of may, is one of those like, 
you know, difference between Apple customers and Google customers. And I'm sure, yes, I'm absolutely sure that there are some pr pro photographers who shoot everything in raw using some of the best cameras on earth who also are Android users, no doubt about it. But I think the truth is that most professional photographers are probably Apple customers and probably have iPhones and care about things like that in a way that Android users don't. Yeah. Or is it something that they will announce in the course of the product rollout? Right. And of course, all of this stuff can go on. But the pricing difference is definitely different where, you, you know, it's it's pretty easy. And in fact, depending you know, on how long you've been shooting digital photographs, it, it might be likely for most people that they're all, their complete collection of digital photographs, not just from their phone, but you know, everything they've taken for the last 10 years or so, is already bigger than the free storage tier that Apple offers. Whereas Google's is it's free for however many you want with that caveat that they're going to recompress them. But to what they, you know, claim to be still a very high level. Yeah, I know David Mark on on Loop Insight pointed this out, but again, like this, this is fine if you want, if you're happy paying with data because the terms of service are kind of nebulous as to what they can do with it, and I don't think they're going to do anything wrong with it. And a lot of it is always just covering your ass if you have to move servers or do something else, uh, and you don't want to be sued when you do the normal course of your business. But you know, with Apple, you know, no one's going to show you an ad next to that photo. Your photo is never going to be used as an ad, at least right. Apple is currently being run, and they're not going to take when you do facial scans. Uh, they're not going to say, oh, you know, this is a photo of John Gruber. Now I know what John Gruber looks like and propagate that across their system where with google you might not care about that but again you should and i'm not saying that apple couldn't reduce prices it's just google is subsidizing it based on their business model where apple's business model is not being used to subsidize photo the cost of storage one of the reasons i don't use gmail is i, I don't like the idea of ads next to my email and i really don't like the idea of context sensitive ads next to my email and maybe that's just because i'm a funny fuddy-duddy who's been using email since the terminal days but it's like uh, email to me is very personal and I, 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 it just bothers me. So Bradley Horowitz, who's in Apple's or not Apple's Google's vice president for like, what is it like photos streaming and something else? Pretty interesting title, very specific. Um, but who's, you know, more or less in charge of Google photos had an interesting interview with Stephen Levy, uh, yesterday at, at Stephen's uh, back channel. And he, his analogy, which I found pretty compelling, was that Google Photos is Gmail for your photos. But then the flip side of that is what you just said. Well, wait, your Gmail has ads next to your photos. Are you going to, uh, if you have photos of your family at Disney World, are you going to get ads for Universal Orlando next to those photos? I would find that, it, I, I, I would find that extremely bothersome. With Apple's photos, you can click to identify people's faces. Google looks like they're doing that automatically, and that's, again, to feed their machine learning system. And I, I don't know if that bothers me or not. There's a lot of things along this path that uh, I got the Nexus 5 um, last year. I tried to get the new Nexus phone every year, and I turned it on, and it said, do you want to use Google now? And I said, yeah, hell yeah, because it reminds me of Jarvis from the Iron Man movies. I want to use that. And the first thing it said is, can we access your full web uh, history? And I said, no. And it said, well, then you can't use Google now. And that's technically not true. There's a lot they could do for me without having to have access to my web history. And they might have changed that since then. I haven't looked again. But that, that to me, the, the cost, the price of that service was too high. Um, and uh, again, I'm, I, I consider paying with data the same thing as paying with money. So I don't get that service now. And I understand why people would be reticent. Uh, and by all means, if you think it's a fantastic service, it looks terrific. If, you, if you're not bothered by this at all, uh, you know, great. But I think it's worth at least considering the cost of what the services are. Yeah. So here's the storage pricing for iCloud 
and at, this is as of May 29th. Who knows? We might get some new storage pricing in two weeks. I don't know. But it, and delightfully so, uh, the dollar amounts are identical in uh, U.S. and Canadian dollars. So For now. No, matter, no matter which of me and Renee you're thinking of, here's what we pay. 20 gigabytes, you pay a dollar a month. 200 gigabytes, four bucks a month. 500 is 10 bucks a month. And a terabyte of storage is 20 bucks a month. Um, so to me, that's a, you know, that's not bad. 20 gigabytes is very possibly too small for an awful lot of people. Uh, 200 gigabytes is probably enough for just about everybody. And it's $4 a month, which is not that bad, but it's, you know, oh, you know, let's round up. It's 50 bucks a year. And so Apple is saying 50 bucks a year and Google is saying nothing. That's a difference. I'm not saying that's going to draw people to it, but it's, it, you know, it's. I pay it, for the, uh, I pay for the half terabyte plan right now, and it's absolutely a difference. And also, it's if you're on that free five gigabyte plan, it's not just photos. All your backups are in there as well, and a lot of your other data um, yeah. takes up that space as well. Right. And uh, if you look at what pure Amazon S3 storage, because Apple's using Amazon and Azure, I believe, to actually store this stuff. You you pay for you pay for the storage that you use, so it's not an unheard of model. But uh, I think you know Apple's selling these devices; they make a lot of money off these devices. It would probably be a compelling value add to customers if you said you buy you bought a sixty four gigabyte device. You're starting off at sixty four gigabytes. If you want more, you can pay for it. But at least you have enough to back up pretty much the content of that device. Yeah, I wonder. You know, uh, pres- presumably Apple is isn't paying like with a standard S3 plan. No, <laughs> like, I hope wouldn't, not. Wouldn't that be hilarious if Eddie Q just had set up like a, just like signed into S3 and he just pays like a regular bill every month. <laughs> There's a pile of paper bills in the Ferrari next, seat next to him. For every single iCloud <laughs> byte of data. Uh, presumably Apple has a, a very special deal with Amazon for their use of S3. Um, so who knows what they're paying and how how close but it's it would be curious to know how close Apple as a company that is saying this is not our core competency so we're going to go out for storage and some of these you know storage you know some of these services to Amazon with S3 and Microsoft with Azure um and even given our clout and the size of the offer we can make and our you know Apple's uh, famous uh negotiating acumen even so, that's, so let's just presume that they've gotten very good favorable rates from both Amazon and Microsoft. It would be interesting to know how that compares to Google's ability to do it completely internally yeah. in terms of cost. And you at know. what point is it valuable enough for Apple where, like Maps, they start to want to make that their own core competency? Right. Like how much does it, you know, is there a, a significant difference in the cost per typical user who says, okay, yes, go ahead and store my entire photo library on your service. What does that average out to for a typical user um, for Apple using S3 and, and who knows what else, you know, and, and Google doing it completely internally. I think that would be interesting. I'd be extraordinarily difficult to figure this out because I think, you know, it's obviously secret information for both companies. 
And I think it would benefit Apple in the long run. Uh, like iCloud Photo Library, I think, is a tremendous product. I think it solves the problem in a really good way. And cameras, we know, are incredibly important, especially in iPhone upgrade cycles. New cameras drive significant upgrades. But if you always have friction, if people feel either they don't use it or they feel it's too expensive, they're often going to hit that wall where they just they can't take a photo. They want to take it. They have to delete something else. And that reduces the experience. And it's just one more piece of friction that they could probably use their resources to overcome. Yeah. Uh, let me take a break here and thank our next sponsor. And it's our good friends at Warby Parker. Warby Parker is a new concept in eyewear. They were founded uh, with a simple but lofty objective to create boutique quality, classically crafted eyewear uh, at revolutionary price points. New pair of prescription glasses is typically pretty expensive, hundreds of dollars. Um, their idea is they could do it and, and, get them to start at 95 bucks. Uh, so what do you do? You go to their website, you go to warbyparker.com and they have a whole bunch of eyeglasses right there to look from. And you can filter the view. You can look at all the ones. Like if you're, um, just looking at women's prescription eyewear, you can just look at those. If you're just looking at men's sunglasses, you can just look at those. You can filter it the way you want. You can search for certain shapes. Like if you know, you really want to look for rectangular frames, you can filter on that. Um, and, but here's what you do. And you think, here's, I say this like with the mattresses and the pillows and all this stuff. It's like, well, how, how can you buy this stuff online? I mean, glasses are so personal and your face and you never know. You think, Hey, I like these glasses. Those glasses look cool. And then you try them on in the store and you look and you're like, Oh, this looks terrible on me. Uh, well, here's what you do. You sign up and for free, they, you pick the five that you like the best and they just send them to you for free, you know, not with prescription lenses. They just send them to you with, you know, clear lenses. You take them out, you try them on, you look in the mirror, take a selfie, you ask your, uh, you know, your friends, your significant other, you ask them, Hey, how do I look? Which one do you like? Uh, and whichever ones you like, if you have one you like, if there's two, you like whichever ones you like, you send them all back two or three days later. And then you go back to the website and say, well, here's, I know, cause I tried these on, I want these frames and you give them your prescription from your, uh, you know, your eye doctor. And, uh, like a couple of days later, boom, you've got a brand new set of prescription glasses, 95 bucks. Uh, they don't upsell you on stuff like, uh, anti-reflective coating or using, uh, high index lenses. High index lenses just is a fancy way of saying, Hey, if your eyes are kind of bad, uh, the high index lenses lets the lenses still be relatively thin as opposed to, you know, like Coke bottle thick. You want high index lenses if your eyes are bad because otherwise your glasses are going to be thick. They just get, you just get all that. It's included. Uh, stuff you do have to pay more for would be progressives. That's if, uh, you know, you need a, a reader, reading lens if you're older and you need, you know, regular lenses like nearsighted lenses at the top and uh, bifocals at the bottom. So they start at $295, which is a lot more than the regular ones, but it's way less than you pay for good progressives at uh, most eyewear shops. Um, I just bought a new pair. I, I, they seriously, I mean, this is just coincidence that the podcast timing is such. I just bought a new pair a week ago uh, because with all this nonsense I'm going through with, uh, you know, with my eye, uh, I needed a new prescription for my, my old glasses. The prescription in the left eye was no longer relevant. So I got a new pair. I bought them from Orby Parker. Showed up way in advance of what they promised. I think they said, like, hey, you'll get them in 10 days. And, like, four days later, boom, there they were. Um, and they look pretty cool and, you know, 
95 bucks. And the, one of the reasons I was excited about it is that there's a good chance with the stuff I'm going through with my eye that we, even within a few months, I might need a new prescription. Um, so I'm not even out that much money. If these glasses only last me, you know, three or four months before I need a different prescription in my left eye, I'm only at 95 bucks, which is absolutely great. Uh, really, really cool stuff. Now, here's one last thing I want to tell you about them is that they do a thing that I think is amazing. So there's people all around the world who cannot afford prescription glasses. I cannot even imagine what that's like to need and to need prescription glasses and not be able to have them. Um, and so what they do is every time you place an order for uh, prescription glasses, they make available to people around the world who can't afford them a pair of prescription glasses. So in addition to the fact that you're only paying 95 bucks for cool glasses that come quickly and have a wide variety of styles, you're also doing something good for somebody else in the world who needs a pair of prescription glasses. So it's really hard to beat that. So if you're in the market for glasses, prescription or sunglasses, uh, or prescription sunglasses, go check them out. Uh, really can't recommend them enough. Warbyparker.com slash the talk show, and uh, they'll know you came from the show. So my thanks to them. Uh, what else from IO? Anything else? Yeah, the Google Now I- improvements and the, I mean, the Android stuff was interesting, but a lot of them I thought was very similar. Some of them at least was very similar to what Apple had been doing with iOS for a while, like with permissions and with battery usage. But the Google Now and the on tap stuff, which sadly doesn't mean beer is going to pour from your lightning port. I thought that at first. <laughs> but the, uh, well, I guess they don't have lightning ports, they're USB port. But the, the, the stuff about that is what makes me so interested in Google is that it's, they're trying to make these better contextual engines where they can present you already, like they know that if you have a flight coming because they read it off your email, they can present you with the boarding pass for that flight. But now they want to start doing it when you're in locations and in areas that they haven't explored so far. And this is an area that Apple hasn't wanted to go into with Siri. And Apple gets a lot of data from Siri. And for a while, they, they just did not want to mingle or, or, or act on your data on their servers. It was their, one of their privacy lines. But now with the proactive stuff that Mark Gurman was um, reporting on last week, yeah. it sounds like maybe that's changing at Apple. And it makes me wonder what, uh, what a service like Google Now or like ONTAP would be through Apple's uh, strong privacy and security stance or filtering. Yeah, can we do that? We'll just take a time out here and say young young Mark Gurman over at uh, 9to5Mac has, has been on a run yes. like no one else. Hats off to young young Mark Gurman, but he seems to have uh, uh, uncovered about 90 to 95% of what has publicly been revealed about yep. WWDC and what's coming out. Uh, I do think that's an interesting direction for Apple, and I feel like uh, like with Apple and Google in particular, that they each, you know, depending on the nature of their companies, get ahead of each other in certain ways, and then the other catches up. And, you know, and sometimes we can say, oh, well, uh, the one is copying the other. But on the other hand, it's not even about copying. It's really just like it's inevitable that they're both going to go in that direction. And it can go from little things like the copy and paste pop-up you know, you just how to select text and how to copy and paste it, uh, which, you know, iOS didn't have in the first few revs famously, uh, you like, you couldn't copy and paste. And then, but then when they got it, they nailed it. And it's like, oh yeah, this is the way to copy and paste on a touchscreen. And Android experimented with a whole bunch of things and all of them, quite frankly, in my opinion, just really, really stunk. It was one of the areas where Android was just 
it's just one of those things that drove me nuts about it every time I tried it. And then coming up in Android M, they've got what's effectively the iOS style of copy and paste. Other things, though, you know, same thing. Android had it first where you swipe down from the top of the screen and you see a list of your notifications. And they had that for like two years before iOS had a notification center. And guess what? You swipe down from the top of your screen and there's a list of your notifications. So it's not like it's a one-way street. I think that this sort of contextually aware, the phone knows some stuff about where you are, what you do, uh, you know, where you are on a daily basis and can do smart things about it. Yeah, I think it's like it does. Every time I hear them say uh, neural network or machine learning, I do think of the Terminator. (laughs) <laughs> uh, because uh, you know it's one of those things where you know, were those movies sent to us as warnings and I'm, I'm saying that it sounds paranoid but you, you never know how far this stuff is going to get and how much I want them to know about me which goes back to the same privacy discussion about Google Now previously so I, I, I would love to have Jarvis in my house but when I start thinking about it it's just as scary as it is attractive so I'm I'm conflicted about this technology but i think it does have absolute value and if you don't like it um i would i would hope that a company like apple and eventually google would let you just use the functionality that siri provides today where it has minimal knowledge of you and the knowledge that it does have is on device knowledge and it's not doing any big data gathering or operations but for people who do want that who think that providing that data to get that service is a tremendous deal for them that i think apple providing it makes all of ios sort of more valuable to them hmm uh, I find some of the stuff in German's report on it to be a little confusing uh, because like his, uh, his, one of the things he says is that to begin with, proactive will become a new layer within the iOS operating system, replacing the pull down spotlight menu currently found on the iOS home screen. And, you know, again, I don't know where, what his sources are. I don't know anything about this. I've, I, I'm, you know, completely in the dark, never heard anything about it, but that doesn't make any sense to me because that screen is not part of the OS. Like, the, the two layers of the OS that go from top or bottom is control center from the bottom and notification center from the top. And the reason those I call them layers of the OS is you can get them from anywhere. Whereas to me, what he's talking about is just part of the, uh, you know, to use the internal lingo, it's part of springboard. Yep. It's only when you're on the home screen. And it doesn't make any sense to me that it doesn't make any sense to me that this feature wouldn't be available everywhere. To me, it would only make sense in the hold down the home button layer where Siri takes over the whole screen. But I don't know. I think one of the things that I don't know if this is what he's describing or not, um, but previously Apple was doing a lot of really cool things. And part of those were surfaced in Siri. Like Siri could do a lot of interesting search. You could say like combine, compare Apple or Google stock or get me these sports results. Uh, and you could do a lot of interesting searches in Spotlight, especially recently. They made major changes to both Siri and Spotlight recently. And Spotlight could get you a bunch of interesting information, including Wikipedia and maps and ports of interest. But uh, and even App Store search, they were all different. Like some did nearest neighbor and some didn't. And some did some didn't care if you misspelled words and some didn't. And so in, in spite of having all these great technologies, they they weren't merged together. They didn't they weren't better than the sum of the parts. And I think part of what this is is taking the engine that's being built into Spotlight and the engine that's in Siri and sort of making something that is better than each of those individually. Hmm. And Siri is sort of an ancillary interface layer. It doesn't replace it doesn't replace the the multi-touch interface, but it's there whenever you need it. Hmm. Well, that makes sense. Um, what do you think about I, this? This bothers me, but maybe I'm just not aware of the lingo. But it bothers this whole trend towards calling it machine learning. 
bothers me because to me it's just AI. We already have a term for it. And my 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 hunch is that computer science world had talked about AI for so long and for so many decades. And, you know, famously, you know, we, Kubrick thought that by 2001, we'd have a computer you could just, you know, how that you could just talk to. So famously, computer scientists as a whole were vastly over optimistic in terms of when we would get to, like, talk to a computer and hold a conversation with them, AI. Um, and that it burned out the term. And so yeah. we come up with this new thing called machine learning that is, uh, it doesn't, you know, it's two different words, but it was just, you know, a different branch of AI. I remember in, uh, in Dune, which was one of my favorite movie, uh, books and movies growing up, where they had that butlerian jihad and they made a new commandment saying, thou shalt make no machine that thinks like a man. So it's, it's been all part of our culture growing up. And I by no means have any specific knowledge of AI, but it does it does seem like there's this, there's this recognition that's coming out that we're getting smart objects, but they're not smart the way I, AI is. Right. Like Touch ID makes the home button smart, the way Siri makes the microphone smart, the way um, Connect makes the the camera smart, but it's not smart in a Terminator or Matrix way. It's just, right. it's useful. And I wonder if, if this is sort of like what Jeff Hawkins was doing at Nementa, where there was a realization that we can't make them think like us, so we've got to go sort of part of the way there. And this is, they're using machine learning as distinct from AI because it's not artificially intelligent in the way we always imagined it. It's just a machine learning to recognize context in other specific areas. Hmm. Yeah, one of the examples that Google gave, and it does seem, and this is one of those areas where it seems like Google is not just ahead of Apple, but ahead of everybody, but definitely ahead of Apple, is in the aforementioned Google Photos project, um, they're doing more. So Apple's been doing face recognition for, for years. Um, and, you know, but they're doing a lot more. They're doing like recognizing when a picture was of a snowfall and saying, I mean, who does this work? I don't know, but that they're saying that, you know, you can say, I re remember that snowfall back in 2010 and you could search for snow in 2010 and come up with the photos you took of the you know snow piled on your car or whatever which is really pretty cool and it it but it also seems believable it seems like wow i bet that's really complex and really interesting how they got there but i kind of believe it if they can do face recognition why can't they do this is you know a snowy scene yeah, it's sort of like when they told us that siri would get better when the more people use it it's all of these technologies require uh, ungodly amounts of data. It's part of why I think Google really wants to get us to give it more data because it, it who knows how much it needs to consume of snow before it starts to understand and recognize snow. Uh, that movie Ex Machina that just came out, they have a guy there who's sort of, it's sort of like the Google company in that universe. And in order to make his AI, he, he hacked every phone in the world to read every facial feature, feature in the world so that he'd have enough data to reproduce them. And that was the volume that he needed. And it always seemed to me like when you start doing facial recognition or snow or when you have driverless cars, the amount of raw data you need to get to what the car needs or the photo needs to, to make the machine understand it is just immense. Hmm. Yeah, I can totally see that. Um, anything else on IO? I think, I think that was all the really, I mean, there was the cardboard stuff where they have VR and VR is fascinating to me. It's like when Facebook bought um, Oculus because uh, it's always been interesting to me that on a computer, I can have Facebook or Google open in one little window, but then switch quickly. Or on a phone, it's in one little app, but I can switch quickly. But once it's VR and on your face, I mean, I don't know how to quit out of Oculus when it's strapped to my head or quit out of cardboard. 
when it's strapped to my face. So it seems like that's sort of the complete all-encompassing presence that they've always wanted. Yeah, have you ever used cardboard? I haven't. I've used Oculus a couple times, yeah. um, and I've used Google Glass, but I haven't used cardboard. I am worried that I'm not going to be able to use it. I'm worried that my eye situation, that maybe the time where I can see 3D is over. Um, but we'll see. But it definitely seems interesting. And I had to say, like, I was watching the keynote, or at least I watched some of the Google I.O. keynote, and uh, I was watching on the TV, and my son had gotten home from school. And he was like, man, this stuff, this these guys are boring. And then when that part kicked in, he was like, wait, this is pretty cool. So I don't know. I kind of, you know, when they first came out with it last year, I thought it was kind of janky. But uh, just because the only one they had was this seriously simple, stupid cardboard thing. But uh, I don't know. It seems pretty interesting to be able to do it. I don't know. But you raise a good point because this is one of the first interfaces where, I mean, there's always going to be accessibility issues, but this is one of these first interfaces where there's a tremendous amount of the population who can't watch 3D movies because they're just not comfortable with their eyes converging and focusing on different planes and they get vertigo or they get seasick and the, they're trying to fix these, but there will always be a large amount of, of people who will not be able to use this as an interface. And that, to me, investing in it that heavily is interesting despite that. Even before I had this retina issue and I had, I had vision problems, uh, even before that, even when I saw 2020 out of both eyes at distance, uh, I've never enjoyed a 3D movie. Other than like a short one at like Disney, like where you go in and you're in and out in five minutes. And it's like, wow, that was pretty cool. Uh, and I'll tell you what it is for me is I go and see a 3D movie and I, could, I can see the 3D and it's like I don't have any problems with the, what do you call it? Like where some people have trouble seeing the 3D. Yeah. Um, but I would come out of the movie and and I will realize I don't remember the second half of it. Like yeah. I'll be like, I honest to God don't remember what the hell happened there. Like I remember I saw a um, uh, perfect example is Up. I saw Pixar's Up in 3D for the first time. And I came out thinking, hey, that was pretty good. And then I realized I, I really the whole thing once once the kid was in the house i really didn't remember it i was like there was some kind of old you know i remembered vaguely there was the old guy who had the dogs but it was like i i really could not summarize the plot like i i have to spend so much time concentrating on the 3d that i i cannot just sit back and watch the movie and then when i watched up the second time in 2d i was so much more impressed with the movie i was like wow this is so clever this is a typical pixar movie where every single scene is good Every line is worth, you know, every line of dialogue is worth it. It's like, and I just didn't have that impression watching it in 3D. I had the same problem with, I, I got accidentally, I bought 3D tickets to Avengers Age of Ultron and the, the fight scenes were just undigestible to me. There was so much visual information. I had very little idea what was happening yeah. and I went back and saw it in 2D and I was fine. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. My son has and tells me that it's I, that I'm an idiot for not having seen it already. Well, it's Ultron, it's AI, the whole topic. <laughs> Uh, let me take a break here and thank our next sponsor. And these guys uh, have been longtime friends of the show, haven't been with us for a while. Happy to have them back. And it's MailRoute. Um, I don't know. How would you pronounce it, Renee? R-O-U-T-E. MailRoute. I'd do the same thing. MailRoute. But uh, some people might call it MailRoute. Well, either way, M-A-I-L-R-O-U-T-E. Um, you know who you want protecting your email? Email nerds who do nothing but email. 
That's what MailRoute is. These guys created the first cloud-based email filtering solution, uh, and they sold it to Microsoft, and now they're back with their own company. Uh, and it is a really innovative and effective spam and virus filtering, filtering for your email, MailRoute. So imagine a world without spam, viruses, bounced email. Imagine the joy of opening your email and seeing only legit email that you need. Uh, and imagine that with a mail server that you control, your own mail server on your domain uh, for your organization, something like that. MailRoute wants you to feel this joy. There's no hardware or software to install or maintain. You don't go on your server and hook up MailRoute. MailRoute simply receives your mail, sorts it, and then delivers only clean email to your mailbox. So what you do is you go in, it's sort of like a DNS type thing. You go in and change your DNS records, your MX records for mail, so that your the mail for your server that you control goes through MailRoute first. They don't host your email. They're not an email hosting thing. All they do is they... The mail from the outside world comes through them first. They filter it, and then it goes on from mail route to your server. So you're not giving up control of your server if you're an email admin or an IT pro. They're not asking you to let them host your email server. They're just saying, filter your mail through them first. This is all they do. These guys, they're like like the world's you know like preeminent like email experts. All they do is email. Uh, and it really works a charm. It just removes all the cruft from your life. And then your server uh, only has to deal with the good email. Uh, they have tons of features, APIs, anything you want. You know, they're nerds. You can set it up very simply and just have to say, just, hey, just filter my spam and the crap and give me the rest. You want to customize it. They've got everything you'd want to do to customize it. If you are in charge of IT at your, at your company and stuff like that, really, really, really encourage you to check them out. It is a great service. Uh, I know a whole bunch of people who have signed up for this, and I haven't heard a single bad word about MailRoute. So here's what you do. Go to MailRoute.net, MailRoute.net slash The Talk Show, and you'll get a, a, you get a free trial. So you can try it out. And if you don't like it, then you just change your, your MX records back to pointing it directly at your mail server. Easy to change back. You don't have to like copy all your email. You're not copying your email there. You just change the MX record and then all of a sudden you're back to where you were. So you can undo the free trial at any time if you don't like it. But set it up. Set up the free trial. Start filtering your mail through them. And use that, that slash the talk show and you'll get 10% off. Not for the first month, but forever. For the lifetime of your account, you'll save 10% uh, just for being smart enough to try MailRoute and smart enough to uh, listen to the talk show. So my thanks to them. Check out MailRoute. Uh, anything else at, uh, IO? No, I think that was the main stuff. Yeah. So WWDC, what do you think is coming up? Uh, I think Apple's going to stick with iOS nine and OS 10.11. I think we'll see the new Apple TV. Uh, we'll get some more word on home kit. Uh, Apple TV might come with a game store or an app store. Uh, I think those will probably be the at least that the big stuff. Yeah, I am surprised to hear this, but uh, so at the code conference this week, Jeff Williams was, you know, and this is a conference that Steve, this is the Walt Mossberg, Kara Swisher uh, hosted conference that for years was like the all things D conference while they were at the Wall Street Journal. And now it's the code conference uh, now that they're on their own at Recode uh, slash Comcast. Uh, <laughs> 
Zing. And for years, I don't know if there's, maybe there's a year where nobody from Apple showed up. I don't know. But for years, somebody from Apple has, has shown up. Jobs was there many times. And some of his most famous sort of off-the-cuff interviews in the last, you know, 10, 15 years came at that conference. Um, obviously, he's a pretty hard get. He was a pretty hard get. Tim Cook has spoken there a few years ago. That's the conference where Tim Cook uh, said that the wrist is interesting. This was That was two years ago. Uh, and this year, uh, speaking from Apple was Jeff Williams. Uh, so I thought that was, you know, as an Apple nerd, that was something that caught my eye. Because to me, like being an Apple exec who is authorized within Apple to go there and speak, you know, not necessarily open by the standards of open, but, you know, instead wasn't just a bunch of no comments. And in fact, he said some interesting things. Uh, but it's also sort of uh, another sign of Jeff Williams' leveling up within the uh executive hierarchy yeah we saw him do the research kit presentation yeah at the last event and i thought he did an excellent job for his first time yeah and you know and, and in addition to the fact that he did a great job on stage it was to me an important and interesting thing that he announced uh and something that was dropped like a you know a true surprise something that had not been leaked in any way I think the stuff that, like, if you look at the stuff that's in Federighi's org, that traditionally doesn't leak. We don't start hearing about stuff until it starts leaving the, the, that core group of engineers. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so, you know, first sign of Jeff Williams is leveling up was a significant onstage presence at one of their public events. And then another sign here is... Um, uh, his appearance at, at the code conference. And so my conjecture is that I don't know if it's imminent, but I would think sooner rather than later, Jeff Williams is going to get a promotion to chief operating officer. Because he was sort of, when Tim Cook was chief operating officer, Jeff Williams was right underneath him. And then he became senior vice president of operations, which is not exactly the same thing as chief operating officer. It's not a C-level position. So that makes that makes a lot of sense, especially if, if operations continues. On one hand, I can see it because Tim Cook is an operations guy. So you might think you don't need a COO when the CEO is in fact that good at operations. But I think it just makes sense as as Jeff Williams continues to do these impressive projects that that title gets bequeathed to him. Yeah, I think so. And well, and quite frankly, I honestly think I think it's a lot harder to guess than it was with Steve Jobs and Tim Cook. But my guess is that the current succession plan, if something happened to Tim Cook, would be for Jeff Williams to be named CEO. Yeah, I thought the same thing. And that it's, it, it's, and again, it's funny how things change. Where when when Steve Jobs, you know, was uh, sick, and it was, I mean, a, a responsible company would have a succession plan, even with a perfectly healthy CEO like I think Tim. They Cook. have to. I, to, it, well, it's a responsibility of the board. If yeah. they don't, then the board, can, I think, can be, you know, is, is liable to shareholder suits, etc. I, Tim Cook seems to me like the type of guy who, you know, ha always has insurance, <laughs> right? <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, you don't have to remind him that you have to, you know, you should, you know, make sure you get uh, renter's insurance on that, you know, rental property. It's like, yeah. he he's already got it. It's a line item. Um, but my guess is that the current succession plan, if it needed to come in, would be for Jeff Williams. And the funny difference would be that when Steve Jobs, they needed a succession plan, their idea was the last thing we're going to try to do is replace Steve Jobs with another Steve Jobs because there is no other Steve Jobs. And Whereas my guess with Tim Cook is 
we would replace him with the closest thing we have to another Tim Cook, which is Jeff Williams, a yeah. guy with the exact same background. Uh, you know, they just seem like, you know, two peas in a pod, really. I mean, they, and not that, they, you know, and I'm sure if you got to know them personally, I'm sure that they're individuals, but at least from the outside, they are extremely similar individuals, operations background, even they're both uh, from the U.S. South. They, they seem to have similar demeanors even, you know, and, and similar reputations within the company for getting shit done. And absolutely. And Steve Jobs was unique, but he, he did have some of the skills that are really important for a CEO, including the ability to make those deals and the ability to, to rally shareholders. Uh, but a, a lot of the other things, it's not typical, like you said earlier, Johnny Ive probably has no aspirations to be CEO because that's, that's not the kind of job you'd enjoy doing. And I think that's true of a lot of them, whether it's marketing or services or something right. else. Like Craig Federici as CEO makes no sense, right? even though he's phenomenal. Uh, and Jeff Williams just seems like the best fit for that job. Right. Like what it really means to be a pure CEO, it really, to me, comes out of operations. And combined with a deep understanding of what it is that makes Apple, Apple. Right. And, you know, that I don't think, you know, I again, I really do not think that in the near future that they would ever consider looking outside the company for a replacement, you know, CEO. It would it would have to take a significant and I think years long drought of, you know, of, you know, declines in revenue and problems with products, you know, for them to even think about that. It would have to be a situation where something was clearly going wrong. Whereas as long as things are going right, or in my opinion, even just like, okay, uh, they're only going to look inside. I, I agree completely. I don't think there's, uh, it's such a unique culture and getting someone at that level acclimatized to that culture. I mean, we've, we've heard about having some of the problems with the vast amount of engineers, but getting an executive in there at that level I can understand bringing in Angela Aarons, but we saw what happened when he brought in um, John Browett before that. Right. It's just not an easy thing to do. Uh, you know, years from now, who knows? You know, I, Angela Aarons could be on that list too. But Absolutely. It's, it, you know, but it wouldn't be like a near term if something happened near term. And I don't think that's going to happen. I think Tim Cook is, you know, uh, I, this, uh, he's made Apple his life. I think it would be like an emergency situation. But they have to have a plan for it. Yeah. So another way to look at it to me is, you know, there are places you hear about places where they only like to hire software engineers from Stanford, MIT, and, yes. you know, Caltech and Carnegie Mellon. Uh, like if you're not in the top five comp sci programs, they don't want it. They, they don't want to look at you. I think Apple for like a chief executive is only looking at graduates of Apple University. Yeah, no, I think that's <laughs> like really if, you, if you haven't gone through app, years long program through Apple University and learned the Apple way from the last 15 to 20 years, uh, they're not looking at you. And the only the only way to go through Apple University is to be a longtime executive at Apple. Yeah, absolutely. I think Angela, again, running Apple retail and, and stores is, is one of the closest jobs to being president of the division of Apple. Maybe only iTunes is similar. Yeah, because of the scope of that operation. So those those are two people who could, and Angela Aarons did run her own business for a long time. But mm -hmm. like you said, the, the length of time in the company is what makes it Apple. Yeah, yeah, it is sort of the, her own division. And and in a sense, you know, for example, she gets her own marketing. Uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm maybe the posters gum through Schiller's group or whatever, but just the general sense that when you walk into the Apple store, the experience of walking in, I mean, and literally, I mean this totally literally, like how it smells. Yeah. Every sense that is engaged when you're in that store is a reflection of Apple's brand and, you know, being, and that's an enormous 
brand responsibility. And again, that makes it that makes her more like the president of a, of a you know a separate division. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think Q is similar because again, they have marketing and they have events and they have developers and they have designers and all those people working in iTunes yeah. could easily be its own company as well. But he just seems ideally suited for what he does, which is making those sort of entertainment deals. Yeah, Q would be on my short list of guesses though too, definitely. Which is interesting because I've been thinking about this a lot because there, there were all the rumors of the new Apple TV coming out. And the Apple TV, unlike the iPhone and the, iP- and the iPad, is under the iTunes organization. And it's been so long since it was updated. It was last updated um, 2012, the spring. What, what that means for a product when Apple looks at it as not just being a device, but being a device that has to be bundled with services. In this case, you know, media properties or content deals. Because otherwise, they could have just been updating this every year the way they've been updating iPhones. Yeah. So that's that's the thing I'm most excited about for WWDC this year. At least, unless they have, you know, other than the vague idea that they have a complete surprise to pull the, you know, to pull the the curtain on. But, you know, so we blah, 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 new Apple TV. Uh, And maybe there's an SDK, et cetera, et cetera. We don't know anything about it. Like, they've kept that. That's been like the details of it have been to at least from everything i've seen uh it's pretty pretty under wraps but i really do think it's coming this year i i would put money on it i think we can guess a little bit like it's running a single core a5 processor right now and they've almost certainly got to do they're going to go it's an ios device it runs a, a version of ios 8 right now that has just a different versioning number you mean right now meaning if you go into a store and buy a 90 yes. or 69 apple tv yes. right now right yeah single core a5 processor running ios 8.3 i think it's been updated 8.3 uh but you know if they put an a7 a8 class processor in there if they ha- if they let it run something like metal like the, if they start incorporating technologies into it like siri then i think if you just look at it as an ios device and you bring it up to parity with last year's or this year's uh, iphone or ipad then that becomes a very Maybe a more expensive device than we've seen before, but that becomes a really interesting device. And, you know, just in terms, it's crazy. And they do these comparisons as they've gone to retina screens where they show, like, what a 1080p um, TV pixel for pixel looks like on a retina 5K iMac or something like that. And you see, oh, my God, the 1080p TV is, like, just a tiny little rectangle in the corner. Um I mean, you could do like side by side 1080p on a Retina 5K iMac, right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, do four. Of, you could do four of them and still have room for your palettes. So the ridiculous thing is that a, a new Apple TV to run a 1080p TV is pushing way fewer pixels than uh, an iPhone six or six plus. Like it's, it's just not even breaking a sweat in terms of that. In terms of what they could get away with, you know, at a cost efficient level. Um, so I'm really excited to see that, to see what they do, see what the input methods are, um, and to see what kind of SDK they're giving they're giving to us. Well, that's the super interesting thing, and I think you know um, the the platform technologies group under Johnny Suruji, the other Johnny at Apple, I think never gets the credit they deserve. But if you look at something like the Apple, um, the iPad Air two, that machine is ludicrously overpowered for what you can do on it. That's got an A8x processor, yeah. and <laughs> a lot of companies, companies that make money off selling chips, it's not in their best interest to move too fast because they want to get as much money as they can for every generation of chip. Apple could care less, so they just let these guys run as fast as they can. They don't say, "Oh, the A7 is good enough; we'll use." That for two or three years they're not no you can fit an extra core do it you can fit an extra right. more gpus do it and they are i think for a while ios the software was perhaps ahead of the hardware but i think we've entered an age now where i don't even know what you do with the power in an ipad too i don't think anything 
Right. Uh, maybe a high-end game taxes it a little bit, but I don't think anything on iOS taxes it. And if you start putting that sort of power on an Apple TV, I don't. Uh, outside of an SDK, I don't, you don't need that to run HBO now. So I think it, what they start doing, both with the iPad going forward and with Apple TVs, is going to start answering the questions of now that you have all this silicon, what do you run on it? Yeah. Can I tell you what my dream feature for Apple TV would be? And I'm ripping it right off from my pal John Syracuse. Uh, I don't know if you do you listen to the uh, the accidental uh, tech podcast. Absolutely, it's got uh, John. Only Sir- for Casey. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. All right, I got you. I got you. The other guy, the moderator. Yeah, the other guy. Um, so Syracuse had a rant a few episodes ago, and I know it's a recurring thing for him. But his thing is, you're watching a stream or a video or whatever, and you go to fast forward. Uh, or you pause for too long, and then when you come back, it's back at the beginning, Yeah. right? Like you're watching a Netflix stream, and you just want to, like, I understand that if it's streaming rather than completely download. And I'm with, it's like, you just go listen to the episode of ATP where Syracuse ran it, but I just, I'm t- completely in agreement with him. If I want to fast forward uh, a stream, just show me, you know, uh, thumbnails as it goes by, but make sure that the time on, even just if you just move the timeline, and the scrubber and the timeline, and don't even show me anything visually. Just let me see the timeline and pick. And if I say, I know I just want to go back two minutes, and I just go back, just show the timeline animating for two minutes, and then when I stop two minutes later and hit play, if you need a second or two to catch up on the stream, fine. But make sure that that's where you start. And the fact that so many streaming things on everything I've ever tried don't work that way drives me nuts. And it's even worse because, like uh, Syracuse, we've been a TiVo house since forever. I think I got a TiVo in year 2000 when I, uh, my wife and I, uh, when I was working at Barebone Software, we went over to Rich Siegel's house and he had a TiVo. And it, we immediately went out the next day and bought a TiVo. We were like, this is the greatest thing ever. But the thing with TiVo is when you fast forward, it always just fast forwards. And when you rewind, it always rewinds. And it always just starts where you want to start. And you never have this problem. And I know that's because TiVo has downloaded everything to a hard drive in the box. But the simple fact is that with TiVo, you can fast forward, rewind, skim, you know, scan, whatever you want to call it, backwards, forwards, jump forwards 15 minutes at any time, and it just works. And I swear to God, if, I, if Apple TV could just do that for stuff, it, that enough would sell me on it. It's sort of like the original iPhone when you scrolled Safari. They didn't try to render the interface and slow you down. Yeah. They just let you get where you were going and then filled it in behind you. Yes, that's what I want. That's exactly what I want with, you know, like stream scanning. And not, and not to be a dick about it, but also like I know that whatever content deal has been delaying uh, or at least influencing the Apple TV releases, I'm not going to get that in Canada anyway. So just ship me the hardware. <laughs> I never thought about that. It's sad. God, that sucks. Um well, you'll still get the. Uh, I still think I think Apple could do a better job, even with their own content, the iTunes content that yeah. you do get in Canada. And I'd really like to see them focus on that experience and put the sort of it's the the comparing it to scrolling on the iPhone is exactly right. Like obviously, right from the get go, when when the software was way more ambitious than the hardware could support, they still focused on making sure the experience was responsive. And that even if you had to wait to catch up, at least you, it wasn't like if you scrolled too far down on the web page, all of a sudden it snapped you to the top, which would be make you mad, but which happens with streaming stuff all the time. 
and you know, uh, there's super smart engineers working on Apple TV, and maybe there were some frustrations, maybe there were some false starts, but it's, they've had it a long time now, and it feels like there's a big technology gap that's going to help with performance and all. And, Things are smarter now, so hopefully a lot of that will get rectified. Yeah, my my, you know, and again, not to put too much on them because who knows? Maybe it'll be an underwhelming announcement, and I'm not going to hold it against them. But I will just say, knowing that there there are some really smart people who've been working on it for a while, and that some of the holdup, if not all of it, a lot of it has been content negotiation and figuring out what we're going to do in terms of service wise, and it was external. That it's possible that the internal team is really kind of might be on the, you know, be able to, to do like, it's like a 2.0 version of whatever it is that they were going to, if they might've shipped two years ago that they would have shipped then, you know, that they're already at like a a next generation version of it. And there's so much in iOS eight that they're not, for example, last year we almost had no iTunes announcements. I can, I can, I don't, I think I can remember very many at all. And the ones we did get, like iTunes Radio, they never propagated because the Beats merger effectively changed that whole strategy. But we don't have continuity for iTunes or for any form of media yet. We can't just get up with the playlist playing on our Mac, just transfer it to our iPhone and keep walking. Or if we're watching something on the Apple TV and we want to go to bed, we can't just pick up our iPad. And you, you can go manually and chase after the functionality the way you used to have to do with productivity stuff on iOS. But it's, it's not yet of that age. And I think this is a huge opportunity. And I don't know any specific information about whether they're going to do it now or not. But there's a lot of stuff that they can just do to catch up and bring all this stuff forward that I think would be really interesting. Yeah, I wonder how some of the continuity stuff could work. And with like... A little bit of proximity awareness, you know, like how much easier could they make, um, you know, airplay by like, I already know you're in the living room and you're watching a video and, you know, maybe the Apple TV could get ready to receive, you know, the video so that the handoff happens much quicker in advance. I don't know if you've played with handoff on the on the Apple Watch very much. No, but I actually haven't done handoff on the watch that much. It's interesting because there's there's some collision right now because I, I have a Mac and I have an iPhone and I have my Apple Watch and you can hand off messages or mail or any of that kind of stuff. But uh, my my Mac is broadcasting too. So I'll pick up my iPhone and I'll see the Safari icon from my Mac, but then I'll change Windows. Then all of a sudden I'll see the messages icon from my watch. And that sort of thing, I think they're going to have to figure out too because now we're not going to just have an iPhone and an iPad, but we'll have the Mac and the watch and maybe the Apple TV. Hmm. And who get who gets that slot on the on the right. lock screen or in the dock? Yeah. All right. Let me uh, take one last break here and thank our final sponsor, and then uh, we'll come back and wrap up the show with with our final thoughts. Um, but our last sponsor, and I am positively delighted to have them back. It's our good friends at Harry's. Now you guys know Harry's. Harry's makes premium uh, men's shaving products, everything from the handles to the razors to the creams, uh, anything you need. Um, Really great stuff, really great focus on quality design, a sort of timeless design that isn't gimmicky. It doesn't look like a droid ad from Verizon. It just looks like a nice, classy handle for a razor, a nice, beautiful box uh, of razor blades. and here's the thing, they're by cutting out the middleman, they make them, they package them, and then they sell them direct to you. So you're not going through some kind of distributor and then the distributor puts them in drugstores and then the drugstore sells them to you and it's marked up all along the way. And when you're in the drugstore, uh, because people shoplift this stuff, you've, they've got them behind a glass thing and you've got to hail down a clerk and then they have to unlock the thing and then you pick it out and then they won't even let you take them. They like walk you to the counter 
uh, what a pain in the ass. You go to Harry's, you sign up, you pick the one you want, you pick the starting kit you want, and uh, a couple of days later, boom, the thing arrives in the mail. And they, by cutting out the middleman, their prices are just terrific. So just for example, uh, here's the thing. The blades cost like $2 or less per pack, depending on what you do. So for $15, bucks, you get uh, you get a pack of eight. You can't get a 15-pack of, like, Gillette high-end blades. Uh, I mean, an eight-pack for 15 bucks. You know, they're like $32 or something like that. And that's even on Amazon. Uh, if you go, if you buy 16 at a time, it's only 25 bucks. You're only paying a $1.50 per blade cartridge. And these are the type of cartridges, you know, there's four blades on the thing and, uh, you know, a strip at the top to keep it comfortable. Comes in beautiful packaging, makes you feel really good about it. Um, really, really cool stuff. Uh, they also have things where you can sign up. Once you're a happy customer, you can tell them how often you shave, how often you go through stuff. You can sign up, get more or less like a subscription and blades just show up on a regular basis. So you don't even have to remember to reorder, but to get started before, you know, you're not going to subscribe before you know how good this stuff is. All you do is you go there, you take a look around and you can get these sets. They've got one called the Truman set, uh, gives you some shaving cream or gel, a handle, three blades, uh, everything you need to get started. 15 bucks. That's it. They've got the Winston set, same type of stuff, same three things, except the blade is made out of, um, steel instead of plastic. Really cool stuff. And then here's something else. Timing-wise, exactly. It's a great idea. It's called the Father's Day Shave Set. Comes in a beautiful box. You get to pick between foaming gel or shave cream. Uh, it gives you everything you need to get started with Harry's. And a, just the box alone looks like it's worth it. It's The whole thing is only 40 bucks. Uh, really, really great stuff. Uh, again, no-brainer. I know it seems like, you know, like a, it's like getting your dad a tie. It's right out of the central cliche, you know, get your dad a shaving kit. But this is so nice, and it's so nicely designed. I say go retro and do it. It is a great idea. How can you go wrong with it? Um, really, really cool stuff. I encourage you to go and check it out. You just see that just the box alone looks like it's worth 40 bucks. Don't know how they, these guys do it. Um, where do you go to find out more? Go to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S. Dot com and use the code talk show know the just talk show and on your first order you will save 10 percent uh so my thanks to harry's go there check them out get your uh dad your husband your father um anybody you want a father's day shaving kit really really great stuff my thanks to them you know what i was wrong it's not 10 percent. you save five bucks but anyway that's what you save five bucks at checkout on your first purchase, but it'll be about 10%, um, depending on what you buy It's money in your pocket, money in your pocket and a, a fantastic shaving kit. Uh, one last thing on my list of things to talk about. Uh, I don't know if you have anything and maybe it's related to handoff and etc. but one of the most curious pieces of news that have come out to me, you know what I'm going to say, right? Yep. All right. You say it. Discovery D discovery D. Uh, Explain Discovery D <laughs> to people who may not be familiar with it. So Apple did a lot of under-the-hood stuff with Yosemite. I think they rewrote Launch D. They, they rewrote Discovery D. And my original understanding is that this was a key component for things like continuity and 
for a, a world where you do have things like the Apple Watch and you need to be able to move, identify devices and move information, not just information, but actually activity back and forth between them. But it was remarkably error prone. I think Rich Siegel was my favorite when he posted a screenshot showing Apple TV bracket one all the way to 99 or something on his right. uh, screen. All right. So for example, if in the last year you've had an experience an experience where let anything on your home network uh, yeah. has suddenly gotten a new name where it was the old name parentheses and an integer like example, a perfect example that your Apple TV no longer shows up as Apple TV. It's now called Apple TV one or uh, you know, Jones iPhone is now Jones iPhone two. That's yeah. discovery D that's an issue with discovery D. Or if your other computers on your network no longer show up in the finder, like they're just they're just not there anymore, or they're only intermittently there. I it does seem like they fixed my problem at some point, but we had a problem here. I think I talked about it in the show a few months ago with our HP LaserJet printer, which has uh, Bonjour support. And at first, when we first got it a couple of years ago, it was great because we no longer needed uh, it. It just go and set up a printer, and it was listed, and then it would figure out what it was. It was almost, I swear, and I know this is retro, but in the old days of Mac, classic Mac OS with the chooser, and we didn't even have network printer, but you plugged a printer in your computer and you went to the chooser and there it was, there was the printer and you selected it. And then when you went to whatever app you were using to print, it would print to that printer. And there was no other, no drivers to install, no telling the computer what printer it is. It all identified itself. That's how it worked with our LaserJet until you know, Yosemite. And then all of a sudden uh, you, you printed yesterday and then you went to print today and it wouldn't print. And then you'd go to see where's the printer and it wouldn't even be listed. Yeah. And if one of those fixes was to basically disconnect everything, especially Apple TVs and then reconnect it. And it sounded, I don't have the technical acumen to say whether this is true or not, but it sounded like almost some form of cash poisoning where something would keep a bad list or, yeah. and, and it would just replicate errors over and over again. Yep. And it would maybe like hang on to old ideas of where something should be. Um, But the weird thing about it is it replaced something called MDNS responder. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing is, is people, you know, again, when I was younger, I would have been right there with them, but they're, you know, people far braver than me, uh, jury rigged Yosemite to turn off discovery D and, replace it with MDNS responder from like, uh, uh, I guess what we had before Mavericks, Mavericks, yeah, like the last stable version of Mavericks, which to me, that type of stuff, I can see why it works. I'm not shocked that it works, but to me, that sort of doing surgery on the OS is not for me anymore. Right. That's a young man's game. Uh, but by every account I've read, if there's like sets of instructions out there, uh, I wouldn't recommend following them if you're, you know, I, but there are, and by all accounts, it worked that you could disable Discovery D, go back to Maverick's version of MDNS Responder, and everything just worked. And the weird thing is, before that, before somebody had figured out, here's a proven set of instructions to do it, the assumption was, well, they replaced, M- why did they replace MDNS Responder, which didn't have any of these problems, with Discovery D, which has all of these problems? And the consensus was, well, some of these continuity features must depend on yeah. it. And if you do this, I get, I'll bet some of the continuity features aren't going to work anymore. And apparently not. <laughs> and so the weird thing is that in what's still a beta, the latest beta of 10.10.4, 10. 
that's is exactly what Apple has done is that discovery D is no longer there and they've gone back to MDNS responder. Yeah, it feels like an MDNS responder has been around since Jaguar, but it feels like they, they needed this rewrite or they felt they needed this rewrite. And oftentimes people at Apple will complain that they're not allowed to refactor old code or they just don't have the time to refactor it. But it sounds like this went forward and they were given opportunities to fix it. And there were fixes that were in almost every point release. And it just got to a point where a decision was made that it's it's not being fixed right enough or fast enough and we're we're cutting bait. <laughs> And I don't know if this is just for now and they're testing it because it, what's weird is this is a beta. So it, unless it's in the shipping version, it's not going to hit everybody. Uh, so if the shipping version comes out with Discovery D back in it, then I don't know what this means. If it comes back with MS DNS Responder in it, then at least we know that that's been officially changed everywhere. Now, MDNS or Discovery D is also on iOS 8, right? I believe so, yeah. I believe so too. And I had a friend who said that he was with two, this is a friend who does not work at Apple, but had, uh, was out with uh, a few Apple folks and joked, I'll bet they replaced Discovery D on iOS too. And, and they, they just went silent. And the one, the one Apple guy had to like stifle a laugh. And I don't know. I read that as you may, but I mean, they, you know, and they wouldn't, ex- no further words for explained, exchanged on the subject, but there might yeah, be something I, there. Like, I think if you started asking, you'll just get a glare saying too soon. I my guess is there's somebody within Apple who's the DRI again directly responsible individual for Discovery D, uh, who is having trouble sleeping at night and when he wakes up in the morning is covered in sweat. <laughs> yes, because That's this probably- sort of thing does not happen. Like they Apple stubbornly fixes these things rather than go back. To, yeah, like they didn't roll back iCloud to mobile me. Right. Like a rollback like this just is, you know, and it's not the hugest deal in the world, but it's just out of character for Apple. And and another thing I have heard is just loosely that in term in, in the aftermath of this coming out and just like asking around, like, what the hell, man? That is you know, this is just crazy. Um is that Discovery D became like the whipping boy for anything and everything wrong with Yosemite, uh, even if it had nothing to do with networking. Like, just it a loose terms from the top. It's this whole basic idea, you know, and to go back even to Marco's uh, uh, functional high ground thing, this whole basic idea that Apple software has become a little less reliable uh, with Yosemite uh, really rank really rankled people within Apple uh, all the way up to the top. And that, you know, uh, I've talked about this, but that, you know, there were people who, who not who went in denial about it, but who said, wait, our open bug count is lower than it's been in yep. years. We've, you know, we've been fixing bugs at this incredible rate. This doesn't, it doesn't make sense that people think we've been getting less reliable or, and we're getting fewer crash reports than ever. Things are crashing less. Um, all these ways they have internally of, of analytically measuring reliability were saying Yosemite was, was one of their best releases ever. And the conventional wisdom out in user land was that it was one of the worst. And the whole thing came down to its Discovery D's fault. Yeah, they were using the wrong metrics to, to qualify their success, but Discovery D became the poster child. Right. And, and you could just see, like, in a, in a pre-Steve Jobs world, he'd be sitting there with Apple TV 99 and want to throw the controller at somebody's head. You know what? It actually, doesn't it seem like a Steve Jobs decision? 
that at some point there was like, it, it obviously wasn't, but at some point, like, you know, somebody got started about all these bugs with Discovery D, and there's this it, frustration and, and pride that Yosemite's supposed to get, and he's just like, fuck it, we're going back yes. to MDNS Responder. And everybody in the room is like, well, we don't do that. We, and, and then he leaves, and it's like, he just said, we're going back to MDNS Responder. And so it's like, okay. <laughs> and in the old days, to bring the show full circle, Scott would have said, don't worry about it. Give me two weeks. I'll turn them around. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And there's nobody there for that. So that is uh, a curious story. But in another way, though, it's actually sort of makes me feel good. It's like, let's let's not be stubborn. Let's not be too prideful with the new thing. Let's just go with what works. It's not all, doing something like this is no longer off the table. Right. Uh, which I think is huge. And it makes me, because uh, the other thing Jeff Williams said at, at Recode was confirming that the native SDK is coming for the watch. And a lot yes. of, it, at least I thought that Discovery D was instrumental to all that kind of stuff that they're doing now with extensions. And yeah. um, I, you, you never know it's brand new what's going to happen, but this kind of culture, I think, is better is a better environment for it. I skipped around a little bit, but I did want to say that about the code conference. I thought that was such an interesting thing for him to reveal two weeks before WWDC that they're going to have the native SDK. Um which I really wasn't sure about. I know a lot of people thought it was a no brainer, but I thought, you know, watch kit itself is still relatively new that, yeah. you know, and I know that they said, you know, I'm not, on the one hand, I'm a little surprised. On the other hand, I'm not shocked because they did say it was coming later this year. And if it is coming later this year, why not unveil it at WWDC? Yeah. I think some people think they're going to actually get the SDK, but it wasn't clear to me whether it was just a preview or they're actually be dropping the SDK at the show. Yeah, I don't know. And then it raises all sorts of questions like how do you install developer releases of the OS on your watch and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, special developer version of the of the Apple Watch app for iPhone. I that's what I would guess, right? Yeah. That's what I would think. Um Well, the whole thing is brand new. Like they just had the first Apple Watch update uh very recently the, the update to iOS 8.3, which I guess they're calling Apple Watch 1.0.1 and they had instructions for how to do it because it's very different than updating any other Apple device. Yeah. Yeah, because it's all it, you can't do it on the device itself. It's all through the uh, watch app on the phone. So you have to put it. You have to make sure it's on the charger. It has more than fifty percent because they're going to turn Wi-Fi on full blast to get the data over. And then you have to, you know, you basically watch it on the phone. Then it switches over to the watch and reboot. It's an interesting procedure. Yeah, yeah, went very well for me and seemingly for everybody. Me too. Absolutely. You have to think. That I I thought while that happened in the day that it happened that that has to be like such a gigantic collective held breath for like Kevin Lynch's team, where yes. like no matter how well they've tested it and how confident they are, it's like putting it out in the real world. There could be you know even like that one percent. You know, like if one percent of the watches got bricked, it's like that is a, that's a failure and it's going to be a, a PR disaster. Especially because of the iOS, the iOS update, I think it was 8.1.1, that only affected iPhone 6 and iPhone 6 Plus if you used the Delta file update over the air. The, the full install was fine. Right. Um, but that, you know, for a first generation product, the first time that happens, it, it's not, even though that was terrible, it would be even worse if that happened to the watch with the first update. Right. Because the first one is the one where the press would, you know, be able to jump on it and say, you know, first, uh, first watch update bricks watches. And yeah. it's like, that's, that's not a good headline. Yeah, and especially because you don't have as much access to the watch, even that you have to an iPhone. I don't know what people would do to start troubleshooting that. I think they would. I think it's. I think a bricked OS on the phone or on the watch has to go to a store. I don't think there's yeah. any way around it. I really don't. 
because with iOS, uh, with my iPhone 6 Plus, I just plugged it into iTunes and restored to the previous version and then did a full upgrade and it was fine, but I, I can't do that with an Apple Watch. Right, because I don't see how if it gets bricked and, and during an OS update, how they, otherwise they would still have to have some kind of working Bluetooth uh, yeah. or Wi-Fi, I don't know, one or the other, that the, that the phone app could still detect it and do it over the air, but I don't know that that's possible. In the Apple TV, it's still got the, the micro USB port, and you can plug it into iTunes if you really have to, but the, pl- the port on the Apple Watch is sealed away. Yeah, the port on the Apple, and it's definitely, yeah, that's a seal that is, you know, technically if you want to, and there's videos out there of how you can do it, but there's no way that that's ever a troubleshooting step for the customer. Yes. Yeah. It might be what they do at the store, but it's definitely not ever user-exposable. Yeah, and the store can't handle the volume of every Apple Watch coming in there. Right. Uh, and even now they can't, and people can't get their hands on them close enough. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Like our, our watches just ship, but I think like the, you still can't just order a modern buckle, for example, off Apple.com. It still says not available. Right. No, I still I keep here in July. Yeah. Um, yeah. So last thing I have on my list is that you and I, the watches that you and I both ordered for our personal watches, both arrived right around the same time, about a week and a half ago. Yeah. The space black link bracelet. Uh, I love it. I I do. I I'm very happy with it. I was torn between this one and the stainless, the regular stainless, and that's the one I got for my review unit. And so having worn both, I I'm definitely glad that I got this one. I had the stainless steel with Milanes for my review unit, but it was just something about the black and the way that Apple does manufacturing. And I understand why some people would think like the gold might be the height of whatever the Johnny Ive, Mark Newsom powers are with the watch but for me this was always the most attractive version just because it's stainless steel it's dlc there's so many things going on with it and the look i think you're the one who said that it changed slightly between september and march i i i'm convinced it did i cannot prove it i also felt i was in the store yesterday or the day before with my son uh he had a hardware problem with his macbook um and so while we were there, we were looking at the watches. To my eyes, now the the one in the store is lower; it's under glass, and so the lighting could be different. But to me, the demo unit that they have in the store under the glass display looked slightly lighter than mine. It looked theirs looked more like dark gray, and mine looks more like black. But I thought the ones in September definitely looked more like darker gray metal and not black. But I could yeah, be misremembering. I think I have a photo, and now looking at it, I can't tell if it's the silver or the black one because, and I, I was sure it was the black one, but it looks so light compared to this one. Sammy, so, mean, you have it. On, is that from uh, iMore? Uh, I just took an Instagram back when oh. we went to the September event, and I went back to look at it, and it just looked so light mm-hmm. uh, compared to what I have now, and it made me doubt whether it was actually the black watch that I took a, a photo of. Yeah, I. That's what I remember thinking in. I rem- and again, I could be wrong, and maybe I was just looking at two stainless steel ones. But I remember in September, looking at the in the press area and thinking, I don't understand why they made both of these because they look almost indistinguishable. They're calling this one stainless and this one space black stainless, and they look like the same thing to me. Um, whereas the one that's wearing is on my wrist is truly black. It's as black as the display. What you call blacked out, I think, in a watch. Right. Uh, and the DLC to me, the diamond like coating that they use is just terrific. I've been wearing it nonstop for a week and a half. It still looks like I took it out the box. Yeah, that's actually true for me too. Whereas the regular stainless definitely develops scratches on the bracelet, you know, within a day or two, which is normal, I should say, for a stainless steel, like my, you know, my own stainless steel watch, you know, 
you just get scratches. It's, you know, if you look closely at it, you know, and whereas this DLC coding really does seem to be keeping it in, in like out of the box condition. Yeah. And it feels, it doesn't feel, uh, you mentioned this before. It doesn't feel like metal. It just feels really good. Ah, it really is a weird thing to talk about. Like we talked you and I talked about this just personally, but it, to the touch, it has, it, it feels hard like metal, but it has like almost a rubbery texture, like a non-porous texture. Like Kryptonian or something. I don't have a definition for it. Yeah, I have to say I really like it. Yeah, but it, I ordered it first thing, first thing, seconds after the store went live, and it didn't show up until a week and a half ago. So that was a long time. Me too. And uh, yeah, I think this. I think it was one of the last models to actually ship. Yeah, editions. I think shipped last week. Yeah. Uh, do you know anybody who got an edition? Have you seen it? Uh, there was that guy, that that kid in uh, China, who put two of them on his dog. <laughs> I saw that uh, Jonathan Geller, yeah, Don Geller, the uh, of Boy Genius Report, got one. Yeah, it looks really nice. <laughs> I don't know if it's out of turn, but on last week's show, Dan Fromer and I were talking about how we hadn't, uh, how we hadn't seen any in the wild, and uh, then after we published the show is when it seemed like they first started sh- shipping and. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't think you'll see many in the wild anyway. Uh, Dan uh, alerted me to it. That was the first I'd seen that Jonathan Geller had gotten his gold Apple Watch. And, and his DM to me, Dan Fromer, said, Boy Genius wins the Golden Turd Award. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't blame the kid. If you got the money, go ahead and get it. Have fun with it. I don't blame anybody who wants to spend the money on it. I think he just got married last week or the week before, and I think both he and his new bride got them. Well, good for them. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Somebody, uh, a listener also texted me that they saw somebody in Grand Central with a rose gold, um, oh, I forget what band. Might have been a sport band, but a rose gold one with a sport band. So, uh, you know, they're definitely starting to ship. And I think, you know, obviously places like New York City and stuff like that are where you're going to see them. When I was at the, uh, I went to the try-ons at the store in Palo Alto and I went for lunch afterwards and there was just a group of people sitting around uh, at one of the tables and they were talking about which version of the edition they were going to get. It wasn't a question about which watch. It was like the rose gold, no, the yellow gold with this buckle. And that, that was just their version of the conversation. Huh. Interesting. So I'm sure for some people, again, it's like, you know, people who, who get $25,000 plane tickets to Singapore or who get $20,000 Oak Couture dresses or... Right. Uh, six or seven star hotel rooms. It's just, that's the option that they're going to choose. Yeah. <laughs> not our world, John. No, I guess not. Uh, anything else that you wanted to talk about before we wrap up the show? I think we did a good job. All right. It's been a busy week. Yeah. Uh, I will see you soon, right? Yep. All right. Cause, uh, I guess I should say, cause, uh, uh, there's questions about my, I am free to fly. I've been free to fly for over a month. So I'm, I'm, uh, uh, invited to, and we'll be at, uh, WWDC. Likewise, It'd be fun. Did they do? They didn't do invitations this year. Like, no. I just got a phone call. Yeah, I, I think some some people on Twitter tried to say they did, but then when I tracked it down, I didn't. Find, I couldn't find anybody that actually gotten the traditional invitation. Right, because I and to my knowledge, so nobody has like no. We don't get to do the uh, 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 the Kremlinology of trying to read into the invitation design what the topics are going to be. 
Yeah, but I think they would have probably just used that logo that they made for WWDC anyway. Right. So we kind of did that. Right. So it doesn't. I really just go to Dalrymple's site, and if he doesn't have a picture there, I assume there's no. Yeah. Email. I just figured nobody got one. All right, Renee. Uh, everybody can find out more about Renee Ritchie's work, uh, certainly at imore.com and on Twitter at uh, uh, Renee Ritchie, right? At Renee Ritchie? Yep. R E N E R I T C H I E. The podcast that you're on. If everybody, you enjoy Ritchie, uh, Renee Ritchie on a podcast, you've, you're in luck because Renee is on 37 podcasts. I'll let you pick uh, up to five of them. Well, no, we just put um, Debug Live a few minutes ago, and it's with uh, Guy and Paul Cafasis. Oh. And they have nothing to talk about for about three hours. Where was that from? Uh, that's on Debug, and it's... No, but where uh, was it recorded live? Oh, we just recorded on Skype. Oh, I gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. We can't, it's funny, because we did uh, the podcast at Ool, and after an hour, it felt like forever. And yeah. we talked to Horace Dedia and... Um, Steve Trotton Smith, and it just an hour felt like an eternity. Three hours with Paul on Skype felt like half an hour. Yeah, no, that's always the case. When you're on stage, you feel it, you know, yeah. in a sense that you don't live. Uh, so Paul Kafas has never heard of him. Uh, sounds no. like an interesting eager guest. young go getter. Yeah. Uh, and anything else? So you got debug. What else? Uh, we got vector, which was on hiatus, but it's coming back uh, right after WWDC. Excellent. And that's that's most. I do the iMore show as well. But probably heard enough apple stuff for now goes without saying yeah uh all right and thanks to you and uh talk to you soon talk to you soon all right call that a show